Your journey continues on the enigmatic episode 100 spectacular of So Many Insane Plays. So let's next talk about Meekstone. This is a great one. So it's a continuous artifact for a single mana, and Meekstone <laughs> simply reads, any creature with power greater than two may not be untapped as normal during the untap phase. Again, not too bad of a wording from an alpha perspective, and I find this card interesting for a couple of reasons that uh, maybe are a little non-obvious. Uh, Steve, do you have much experience with Meekstone? That's not the sort of card that I recall talking with you about very much. It's the kind of card that I have probably contemplated it's one of those cards that i have fashioned into a deck list far more times than i can count but have never actually ended up running <laughs> yeah yeah that's true i have actually put this it's in a, a couple of sideboards card. over the years and <laughs> and it always came back out yeah i i remember playing with meekstone when i was younger because again a sort of revised card that i pulled several copies of back in the day and it's Except for Sarah Angel, of course, it's actually pretty effective at neutering some of the better creatures, even in just the alpha context. And so I like that part of it, especially the thing that stands out to me as you and I read through this set and review it is how I feel like this card is a mistake as an artifact from a <laughs> from a color pie standpoint, because this disproportionately think it should affects, have been a white enchantment or something yeah well and that's part of the reason is that yeah that dis- disproportionately affects colors differently and the simple truth is is that this effect yeah as you observed has shifted into white over the years and there's a there's yeah. you know color pie good color pie reasons for that you know th- this card is this card in force field are really the main primary kind of anti-creature or creature control artifacts in the in the set mm-hmm Right, um, and they both have kind of significant flaws that overshadow their upsides and have limited them from really being, I think, key implements of constructed decks. That said, Kevin, this card, if I'm not mistaken, is actually in the Zach Dolan '94 Championship deck. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So, so he obviously saw some value in being able to slow. I guess they banned the expansion sets. Oh, no, they were expansion sets were legal for. For, they were they banned the expansion sets at uh, at nationals in '94, but it certainly I think was effective against let's just say Urnums, Jusums, things like that. The thing and Juggernauts. The thing that stands out though, Kevin, is so so yeah. You make the point that you know Banalish Hero, Mesa Pegasus, unlike Plague Rats, say they're never going to grow. They're going to s- slip under the the Meek Stone threshold. Mm-hmm. The kind of uh, limbo dance, right? Like, <laughs> <laughs> um, I I think though that. It's interesting. This card is interesting also with a bunch of utility creatures and Icy Manipulator, right? So you can, sure. it doesn't affect Llanowar Elves, doesn't affect Birds of Paradise, doesn't affect Royal Assassin, doesn't affect, um, Zach, because it does affect Zach Dolan's Prodigal Sorcerer. <laughs> Prodigal Sorcerer, right. Um, it's, it's also in terms of creature defense, I think what you're getting at, it's kind of the closest thing in alpha you have to a moat. Yeah. Right. A kind of just a universal moat. And that's, that's the main point. And so that's why I think you were saying, that in terms of creature defense, which shifted to kind of white enchantments, I guess there's Island Sanctuary, so I should have, I, I shouldn't forget about that. <laughs> That's true. Um, but obviously, there's a huge conditionality and even worse downside built into that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And while in the still in the early stages of the game, moat 
pretty much cemented white as the kind of the blanket anti-creature enchantment color, you know, after Island Sanctuary. But that didn't stop R&D from experimenting with this effect on artifacts, too, because we got the kind of inverse, not inverse, but related version of this in Juntu Stakes from Invasion. Remind me what that card is. It's a two-mana version of this, which keeps small creatures tapped down, power of one or less. Ah, okay. And I remember that being kind of a big deal when it was printed because it was it has a dramatically different effect on the game, right? It's a way for yeah. you to keep small creature decks down. It's a way for you to keep utility Hit creatures down. down, right? It taps down all of those creatures you listed that Meekstone misses in Alpha. And so I think Juntu Stakes was a really interesting design, and it's only ever been printed one time, ironically, Juntu Stakes. Whereas Meekstone was printed, it was one of those things that was apparently viewed as a corset staple because it was in every corset up till 7th. Wait, wow. is, that, is that true? Yeah, four, five, six, seven. And then hasn't been printed again in any kind of um, core set or uh, f- uh, format-defining set, except was it, it was an invention, one of the Kaladesh inventions. <laughs> was it ever in any other constructed, highly performing or highly placing constructed deck that you can think of from other, you I, know, other formats? I have no recollection of, of a highly performing Meekstone. I really don't, aside from the was, Zach Dolan example. I mean, there are a number of cards in Alpha that appeared in other formats, like Tech 2. Wasn't Slight Knight like an archetype in, in various formats, like lesser formats for a while? It, yeah, but it never never to the degree like that Merfolk. it really stood out. Yeah, or, or like Merfolk separated or like itself. Yeah, yeah, never for the long term. Yeah, Slight Knight was, I think, more novel because of its, its well, its novelty, right? <laughs> it's, it might stand out in your mind because it had a, a, a pithy name and a, a fun effect that really harkened back to Alpha as well as some of the early, like, Tom Champagne's deck. But yeah, I don't think it's ever really gone anywhere. Fair enough. Obviously, this Meekstone has really wicked Quentin Hoover art. And oh, I, yeah. I wanted to make a point of asking you, do you read this as that the, the man in this art is being held down by the meek stone or do you read this as the man is uh like empowering it doing something with it that's interesting originally i had just thought that the meek stone was keeping this powerful shaman or whatever you know tethered in place yeah but yeah. that doesn't explain what the arm is doing right the arm like why would he why would this assuming man why would he be reaching for the meek stone if he yeah. was imprisoned by it i don't know yeah, I'm with you. The the exactly that the the fact that that he's reaching out for the stone kind of alters the the perception of the what's going on here. But either way, it's pretty clear that the stone's energy is engulfing him because it's surrounding his body. And yeah. uh, I I just really like this art. I think it's really cool, a little bit dramatic. <laughs> and it's, and uh, Quentin Hoover always does incredible detail, and I just love the the comic book style detail in this one. It's neat. It yeah. really is neat. There have been quite a few enchantments over the years that stopped creatures from untapping, and frequently they're in the form of color hosers, right? Like your magnetic mountains and your dream tides and things like that. So it's not the sort of thing that, just from a purely untapping standpoint, that white has has dominated, but almost all of the effects that key off of creature power and toughness, especially power, are still strongly in white. There's lots of things like Crackdown and other things that look for a certain power and then affect those creatures. One of the Elspeths has a Wrath that I think is four power or greater, that kind of thing. And for historical note, this card is entirely unchanged from Gamma. The Gamma version costs one, 
With no activation, it says no creatures with a power greater than two can be untapped while the meek stone is in play. So functionally identical. All right, let's move on. To, and so two of the next four that we're going to do, we've already kind of <laughs> pre-reviewed in the form of the, the common tribal creatures in the set. The first one here is Merfolk of the Pearl Trident. Not much to say. A single blue mana, summon Merfolk, and a whole text box full of flavor. The <laughs> the fact that Merfolk of the Pearl Trident are the only representatives of the Merfolk tribe in Alpha we've already covered when we talked about the Lord. The fact that they're very vanilla and boring, I think we also already covered. <laughs> so, you know, it's a cute card, and I know a lot of uh, Merfolk aficionados have a lot of affinity for the Merfolk of the Pearl Trident. And that's cool because, the, you know, in the early days, especially, you had very little to latch onto <laughs> for this tribe. And um, the the Pearl Trident itself as a concept has has borne through as uh, in, in a couple of future Merfolk cards, namely Master of the Pearl Trident, which is a recapitulation of the Lord, and then a, a little more obscure one, Sentinel of the, Pure, uh, the Pearl Trident. Other than that, Steve, uh, the only thing that stands out to me is this very blue Jeff Mangus art. Yeah, it's a wash in blue here, mm-hmm. um, which is pretty interesting. The thing that stands out to me, Kevin, and we've noted this before, is that the design of Alpha as a set is presumed that you the pieces are intended to work together. But yeah. this is the only Merfolk, as you say, whereas there's only two goblins, right, and then a couple of zombies. Like, that... That, I think, assumes that if you're going to build a Merfolk deck that you're going to be going, like, you know, more than four of this, right? <laughs> yeah, I guess so. It presumes exactly that in practice. It must. So this is this is intended to be the, the primary Merfolk minion, and that has no longer proven to be the case. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the good news is, is that, as we've dis- observed uh, already in this review, that uh, future subsequent Merfolk got a lot better in quality, like Curse Catcher in particular. And so the Merfolk of the Pearl Trident are just kind of left as a historical footnote. They might be played in some obscure format that I, I can't really claim expertise in. Like, I don't know, maybe there's a pauper Merfolk deck, for example. But even then, I would be surprised if they were good enough. Yeah, sadly not. It is, it is definitely a cool, compelling card, but that said, this card were- will never see, see play in a Merfolk deck these days. <laughs> That's true. They were reprinted a surprising number of times. Alpha, Beta, Unlimited, Revised, 4th, and 5th edition. Then they were in the starter sets, Portal and Starter, and then 6th and 7th edition, and then kind of inexplicably M13, which is really bizarre. It almost feels like, it almost feels like it's being inserted as an R&D reminder to develop something more interesting. <laughs> like, oh yeah, we'll, we'll keep that card in the file and let's make something better later. And then they just continue to forget it to do it. Yeah. I do wish that at some point, maybe early in 1995, they had gotten (laughs) the memo and designed a better one drop Merfolk. (laughs) It doesn't take much, right? It really doesn't. No, it doesn't take a curse catcher to make this thing a better card. (laughs) Right. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So next up, we'll get to it. I'll get to another tribal one in a minute, but next up we have Mesa Pegasus. Again, we've pretty much touched on this in a number of ways already. Uh, it's a 1W for a summon Pegasus and has flying in bands. Not banding, but bands. And it's a 1-1. One, one. The, we've talked a little bit about how this kind of typifies the common small white creature, the white weenies in the set, and how it stands out as being a common cheap white flyer, which was, in hindsight, a mistake, and not, not the proper positioning in the color pie and how it's on the short list of just a few banding creatures in Alpha. 
uh, and obviously just incredible Melissa Benson Pegasus art, which I think is fantastic. And, and it's it a, really little bit is. Wa- a little bit wasted on a weak card. It's really a shame. If this had been a really powerful, rare, you know, le- uh, or legendary Pegasus creature at some point thereafter, this art would be way, way more sought after, I would say. But anyway, what it, do you want to say? <laughs> well, it really is kind of like the height of fantasy, you oh, know, yeah. illustration. It's just, be- it could be like a novel cover. It's beautiful. Very much so. Or a gorgeous, or a gorgeous plate, an interior plate. Um, we already sp- spent a significant amount of time talking about bands and banding. I, I prefer to just refer to it as banding. Um, yeah, I don't, me too. Um, but we spent a lot of time talking about that in the context of Banalish Heroes, so we don't need to recap that here. Except to say that, that the, just as a reminder, that the band, right, the creatures that are banding together do not gain the traits of each other. So, mm. so banding Mesopegasus with Banalish Hero means that functionally the Mesopegasus band that it's included in cannot fly over an opposing creature. <laughs> right. So, <laughs> all the creatures in the band would have to have flying. Right. Regarding right. the language, Steve, it's it's noteworthy. I didn't realize this until just now, but bands, the word bands was implemented alpha, beta, unlimited, revised, and summer, and it was changed to banding between summer and fourth edition, Ah, which is interesting. I didn't know there were other revisions like that between summer Neat. and fourth. Obviously, summer, <laughs> for, obviously, fourth edition corrected a lot of problems with summer vis-a-vis <laughs> Blue Hurricane and other things, but I didn't know that that was one of them. No, that's interesting. Yeah. Uh, so it wasn't just like shuffling around the card pie. It was actually mechanical and uh, 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 I don't know what you call it. This, it's more than a superficial change. It was a templating change. Yes. Correction. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, there's a part of my brain that is deeply wants to, d- to dive into bands and banding <laughs> and really figure out the nooks and crannies of that. I feel like it's it seems like it's straightforward superficially, but it, there's got to be some interesting corner cases that I want to get a better handle on. I mean, obviously, the main part of banding and bands is just distributing damage in combat to the creatures you want. But yeah. I, f- I feel like there's got to be more to it than that. Well, it's obviously a top-down design, right? The, the, the Fellowship of the Ring, that kind of thing. So, <laughs> yep. <laughs> um, and and it, you, I don't think you have to read too much more into it than that. I mean, the, the sort of colloquial and or layperson language that it's used to describe the band in the rulebook even it pretty much belies it was the pure top-down design. Remind me to talk more about this when we get to Plagrat. Okay. Because I want to I want to explore this a little bit more, but Fair enough. I'll, I'll reserve it for then. Fair enough. I One more thing I want to point out, this card has only ever been printed with its original art, all the way up through 5th edition. There's, there's not a, a Mesa Pegasus that doesn't have this beautiful <laughs> Melissa Benson art, <laughs> which is nice. Okay, next up is a real barn burner, Steve. We've got Mind Twist. Mind twist, pretty simple at its face, right? XB, sorcery, opponent must discard X cards at random from hand. If opponent doesn't have enough cards in hand, entire hand is discarded. Noteworthy that it's pretty inexplicable (laughs) how the alpha wording very clearly says opponent, and yet the um, Oracle Texas target player now. That's pretty indefensible in my opinion. I remember that. That came up, up, I think, when we were playing... Mind twist in in Paragon Keeper. I was gonna say it was must be Keeper, right? Yeah, right against the Misdirection Grow decks. Yeah, exactly. It should not it should not interact with Misdirection. And the card says opponent all the way up through Summer 
And here's another one between summer and fourth edition. The fourth edition one starts with target player. Damn. It's been reprinted with that text, so we can't fix it. Yeah. The only the, the only other printing I guess the since- summer count. So you said it was in fourth, the fourth, fourth says, edition. Fourth, it's one yeah. one other two. It, the the the, the um, Amonkhet masterpieces uh, uh, also have the the current oracle wording on them. Invocations, excuse bad. me, invocations, and a wicked art. I love the art on the, but the original art is always also incredible by Julie Barrow. Steve, you've cast many a mind twist in many a different context. So can you talk a little bit about its its history? Well, let me start by talking about its restriction and banning mm-hmm. history. So. To begin with, the metagame that constructed Magic metagame from roughly May of 1994 until Mind Twist was restricted on June 13th of 1994 was essentially a Mind mind Twist metagame. Mm -hmm. We have documented at least three major tournaments, DC-sanctioned tournaments, that were won by Mind Twist decks. So the first is Bo Bell winning the... um, the, the U.S. Nationals in 1994 with four Mind Twist deck. And then there were two others, which I write about in my History of Vintage 1994 chapter, uh, the updated version, which I'm not sure has been published yet, but it's, it's <laughs> going to be in there. Um, but that, the metagame, it was clearly the best unrestricted card. Mm-hmm. And so it was restricted along, in, and as I said, on June 13th, 1994, along with Chaos Orb, Falling Star, Mirror Universe, Recall, Sword of the Ages, and Under, Underworld Dreams. Um, so I think you know this, but do you? Why don't you just to make it fun and interactive? <laughs> tell me all the cards that have been banned in Type One Vintage history for just banned for let's call it power level reasons. Oh, geez, purely for power level reasons. I I yes. don't know the answer to that as well so, as you do. Well, let's take but, out let's take out the um. Well, you got to take out cards like Shahrazad and. Well, well, let's take out the dexterity cards. Yeah. Which, which were banned. Now let's take out the plane chase cards. Yeah, naturally. And the conspiracies, of course. Yeah. The conspiracies, yeah. Well, I mean, I know the recent ones, like Luris and Scheherazade. Um So Luris is the most recent that yeah. been banned for power level reasons. Yeah. And then I'm trying to think back before I mean, the ones that I was really party to. Gosh, I can't remember the last one before Scheherazade. Um Well, I'll give you a hint. There are three besides Luris. That were banned in Type One or prototype pre-Type One constructed Magic was, and Type One was Mirror for power Universe one of them? No. Well, I'm thinking Mind Twist was one of them. Definitely. And uh, guys, I'm getting conflated with the, the stupid creatures that were restricted early, like Juggernaut <laughs> and Ali from Cairo. Well, the, I'll give you another hint. And the first card banned for power level reasons was Time Vault. And that and was be- two- for the reasons we already discussed in this review, which was. Um, uh, which we haven't got the time vault, of course, but we were talking about the ways you can animate it and get infinite turns. Right. So there's two in between time vault and Loris. No, I, I can't remember. <laughs> so it's channel and uh-huh. then mind twist. So channel and chaos orb. So time vault was banned almost from, from go time vault was banned um, with the second, basically the second banned and restricted list announcement on March 20, March 23rd, 1994. Um, hmm. But Channel wasn't banned because Channel was obviously a key part of the finals of the vintage of the first Magic Cha- World Championship yeah. in the hands of uh, Bertrand Lestray. But Channel wasn't banned, Kevin, until October fifteenth, nineteen ninety-five. Hmm. So it was well into the creation of Type One, right? Like the the separation of formats. It was banned. I believe it was primarily banned. So at the time. Even though they had separated formats, there was a time when 
the bannings would occur across formats. So they had a, a unified banned and restricted list, even though there were type 1 and type 2. <laughs> and I think yeah. channel was just too good, even in type 2, even though it was restricted. Um, but Chaos Orb was also, restri- was also banned at the same time. But here's the thing. Mind Twist and Channel were unbanned at the same time, Kevin, which was hmm. in late 2000, when it was actually, to give you the exact dates, it was announced September 1st, effect September 30th, 2000, which was basically a signal, because my, Time Vault had been unbanned before then, but it would, had been errated. So Channel and Mind Twist were unbanned, which essentially signaled to the Magic community and the Type 1 community that we are no longer going to ban cards for power level, which is what makes the Loris banning so interesting. It's the basically the only card that's currently banned for power reasons. Yeah. So here's the thing. I haven't told you when Mind Twist was banned. Mm. Mind Twist was banned. It was announced to be banned on January 1st, 1996, and took effect January 31st, 1996. And there's a little bit of history behind it, Kevin. So Mind Twist was, and, and for those of you who played old, you know, Type One back in the day, at least for me, and I think many people will share this experience. The kind of the key moment that you'll recall when Mind Twist was banned is when everyone began playing with Amnesia <laughs> in in the deck in particular, like Brian Weissman's version of the deck and Blue White Control decks began running one Amnesia, Kevin, mm-hmm. in the place of Mind Twist. And so Amnesia was a very popular card in 1990, 1996 because <laughs> Mind Twist was banned. And it was also a very iconic card at the time. And you would say, holes in the head, right? That <laughs> you play this card and it's, yep. you, you, you get your hand wiped. But the thing about Amnesia, about Mind Twist, Kevin, it was banned because Brian Weissman essentially threatened a boycott of <laughs> tournament magic. I'm not kidding you. He organized a boycott. On Google Groups, on the DCI listservs, DC, well, it was called the DCI, you know, not DCI listservs, but there were the yeah. M- Magic, MTG, Rec, MTG, Conversation, Rules, et cetera, et cetera. He had basically, it's the first example that I am aware of, of a kind of organized petition to ban a card. And yet, that is kind of the, I mean, there are a number of cases, of course, where it's just tournament data leads to the obvious conclusion, and the DC responds to that. But I think Mind Twist is the first example that I'm able to find of an organized effort that ultimately leads to a significant ban and restricted list change. And it's far from the last. We've seen plenty of that in the last couple of years in Vintage, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and the last six years, really. Um, but Mind Twist is, is kind of the, I don't know if you want to call it the original version of that, the poster child. But it's a forgotten history, and you can find the links to it in the in the archived <laughs> Google groups, where you can see Brian Weissman leading the charge, complaining about it, and then people weighing in pro and con. So I just wanted to just wanted to put that out there that Mind Twist was banned. It wasn't banned with Channel, although they were both freed together. But it was banned because of it. Now, Kevin, there was an interesting because of Brian Weissman's effort. There's an interesting moment though, Kevin, when my I actually strongly argued that Mind Twist should be unrestricted. Because it's not just the case that Mind Twist was unbanned in 2000, it was also still restricted for many years after that. And it wasn't until, Kevin, it wasn't until 2007, specifically, the announcement update occurred on June 1st, 2007, 
taking effect June 19th that MindTwist was actually unrestricted. So you have this pattern. I don't think it exists for any other card in Vintage, Kevin, where it goes from being restricted to banned to restricted to unrestricted. I think that's a very unique trajectory in the history of the entire format. Well, just because the ban list is so short, it, it seems pretty illogical that it must be. There's a yes. um, and no other card in um, in like in the modern day is going to have a, tra- a trajectory like that, right? Right. I guess because cards don't get banned anymore. <laughs> well, and but but Luris wanna... skipped straight from unrestricted to banned. Yeah, I suppose it's possible they could design a new mechanic that we would try restricting first, but banning, it, it, but then but ban, then, but then ban, and then un, then unban and restrict, and then <laughs> yeah. unrestrict. That, that would takes, be a long timeline. Yeah, it would take a decades. Yeah. yeah. So so it's interesting, right? Over this fifteen year, basically from nineteen ninety four to two thousand seven, right? This what is that? This help me with the math on that. How many uh, years? Is Eleven years. Thirteen? Uh, Thirteen years. Excuse me. Yeah. Yeah. 13-year period. I In the middle aughts, though, I was constantly hammering the DCI to un- unrestrict Mind Twist. I wrote a number of Star City game articles, did a bunch of polls, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And I think it was it was unrestricted with... This is funny, Kevin. It was unrestricted with Gush, Black Vise, and Voltaic Key. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so interesting. But I, I think... Is Mind Twist still banned in Legacy? I think it's one of those cards that still should be unbanned in Legacy. When, uh, when we, f- it's currently still banned in Legacy. Yes, when it was unrestricted in in Vintage, there was a very brief moment where someone spiked a European event with a four Mind Twist deck, a control deck, and I think part of what made us realize that Mind Twist was not going to be a problem in in Vintage in the middle aughts. Number one, Stroke of Genius, Brain Geyser, just the X draw spells, ske- uh, Skeletal Scrying were just not very good. Mm-hmm. You know, and so we all surmised that basically the the era of of like expel discard, even hymns had gone away because it had been totally replaced by pinpoint discard. Yeah. That duress was so much more important at being disruptive than mind twist. It was just a better card than mind twist. And so I argued that yes, it was possible to generate a bunch of mana and unfun to like mind twist your opponent for three on turn one. But number one, I didn't think that was going to happen very often. And number two, by the time 2007 comes around or even the middle aughts, you had a critical mass of basically cantrips that were around. Part of what the reason I thought that Mind Twist would be fine is because Kevin Brainstorm existed. Yeah. Right? And true. it was not restricted until a year later. Okay, you Mind Twist me. I'm going to Brainstorm, re-sculpt my hand exactly how I need it. You know, and then you had Preordain, which came out in 2007. You know, and you already had people. We were playing Opt and, and um, Preordain hadn't even been printed yet, but we were pl- – sorry, I meant Ponder was printed in 2007. I think I said Preordain. Yeah. Um, but Preordain hadn't even been printed and we were playing with sleight of hand and opt. I mean, cantrips had just clearly become the critical, you know, baseline package for Xerox decks, such that Mind Twist was just a joke. You know, you you, you couldn't even. And then even if you were dared play Mind Twist, if you got it mana drained or misdirection, it was just a <laughs> complete blowout. Yeah. So so I think you know Mind Twist was just a completely safe unrestrict and despite that immediate scare at that one moment it was just never going to be very good and then in this era when you have spell pierce and fluster storm i can't see how mind to us could possibly be a threatened legacy it seems to me to be a complete joke to have that still banned yeah and i think there has been in most of the intervening periods from from the turn of the century all the way till today there's also been one or more vintage decks against which discarding their hand is not actually that good 
in the modern yeah, era, right? It'd be, it'd be something like Dredge, right? You would you would never you would sideboard out mind twist against Dredge by today's standards, right? And going back through time, you had decks like uh, Control Slaver, right? If you mind twisted Control Slaver, you might find yourself losing the game because you put their slaver into their graveyard, right? With an active uh, Goblin Welder, something like that. Oh yeah. Similar older decks like Tools and Tubbies or Seven Ten or uh, even Psychotog, like mind twisting a Tog deck, not necessarily the best idea. And especially bad if the Tog's already in play. So I just think that a combination of factors, in addition to everything else that you said, the counter spell suites, I mean, Mind Twist is a liability, I, if anything, by today's standards. I just think that the the key development in the history of Magic, and I think it's probably one of the most important developments in the history of Magic, is the emergence of a critical mass of cantrip, of single mana cantrips yeah. that allow you to manipulate the top of your library yeah. This the density you can't look at legacy or vintage metagames and not see just those effects everywhere. They're ubiquitous. They're basically the fundament of design yeah. in those formats. It's that effect that neuters mind twist. It's not that the mind twist isn't hurtful or harmful or impactful. It's that the opponent's ability to recover mm-hmm. is so much faster in in a in a metagame in which there is a critical mass of these blue cantrips library manipulation that mm-hmm. did not exist in 1993 and 1994 and it's yep. what made mind twist so deadly and that's why mind twist is still a house in old school formats like old school 94 mm-hmm. and to a lesser extent old school 95 but once you get and, and it's certainly absurd in alpha and i think justifiably <laughs> justifiably banned in league play and problematic in in other because the ability just to go like dark ritual dark ritual mox mox soul ring whatever you know, mind twist is absurd, but in any format that has ponder, preordain, and brainstorm in any number of quantities, and Sensei's divining top, mind twist just loses basically almost all of its value. Not all. Not, I want to say like at least fifty percent of its value, and that is fundamentally what made mind twist weak. It's not all these other things. It's not. It's not even the efficiency of counter magic, although that's certainly a big part of it. I think it's fundamentally the critical mass of library manipulation because if you you got mind twisted in 1995 or even early 96 on turn one. You might never recover because you might never have lands. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But if you have Gitaxian probes and all this other stuff, you you're generally going to recover pretty quickly. And on top of all that, let's not forget planeswalkers. The fact but, that you can just land a, a, an efficient permanent early. Well, that and most of the planeswalkers that are commonly played are the ones that generate advantage on the board. You can discard my whole hand, yeah. but if I untap with Dak, I already have that cantrip ability, right? If I untap with right. Renin Six, right. I'm already hitting my land drops well, again. Well, that's, that's basically similar to what I was just saying in exactly. terms of library manipulation. Exactly. Yeah. Because yep. the Planeswalkers that are played are the ones that generate advantage over time. Oko, for example. I can win a game with Oko alone if you sink your whole turn into mind-twisting me. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, legacy decks are basically, like, what, they start four Brainstorm, four Ponder, and they had to ban Gitaxian Probe. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Um, just having that as a starting point. I, I don't even know if legacy decks play preordain. I can't remember. It's been Some so of them long do, yeah. I- but your observations about legacy, while it is different than vintage, I think it all still applies. The the mind twist is just completely Hyper outmoded. Efficiency. Yeah, completely outmoded. Yeah. There's no way anyone would be playing mind twist. I assume can't prove that the best discard effect in legacy is probably thoughtseize. If you're going to play any of them, yeah, a combination of thoughtseize and duress, depending on the context. Are there any other ones you would play? Inquisition, maybe? Well, him is still played in some niche archetypes. Him? I don't think it's dominant right now, but it comes and goes. Fair. Yeah. 
Yeah, I'm with you. Immensely powerful card. The first card to be restricted, banned, unbanned, unrestricted. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, just another one on the list of cards that have basically indefensible errata based on their alpha versions. Yeah, I don't understand. I don't know what happened, but there was an era where we debated about whether or not Mind Twist um, should be opponent or player, and I, I don't know why it has ended up this way. I don't really don't remember. It's also worth noting that the artwork that's only it's only been printed as a regular like card in a set, <laughs> which is a strange phrase, uh, with this original Julie Barrow art, except for the most recent printing, which is as I said, the the Amonkhet invocation, which has also wicked art. The card. It's interesting. We talked a lot about the way uh, cards got washed out between Alpha, Beta, Unlimited, and things like 4th Edition. The Strangely, they managed to not wash out this one very much as compared to others, but all the way between Alpha and, say, 4th Edition. But due to the dark nature of the art and the oppressive darkness image, it works so much better in a black-bordered card. This is one case where the black border really contributes yeah. to the effect of the art. Yep. All right, anything else on Mind Twist, Steve? Possibly, I mean, so uh, aside from the Mana Acceleration in Big Blue, possibly the most powerful card in the set. Yeah, agreed. It's very high on the list. Oh, and of note, unchanged from Gamma. The Gamma version is exactly the same. Right. All right, well, here comes the mirror image, so to speak, in the last four cards to Merfolk of the Pearl Trident, and that is Mons Goblin Raiders. Imagine a Merfolk, but it's red. This is a 1-1 for 1 with only flavor text in the text box. And we've talked about the ways in which this goblin is a superior tribe in Alpha uh, for a number of reasons, and not the least of which is it's not alone, and as such, pairs much better with just the few, you know, the other more goblins that there are. The Mons Goblin Raiders also pairs better in the sense that there are more ways for red to pump its creatures in terms of power and toughness, right? Just yep. the, the existence of, say, uh, Gauntlet of Might makes goblin Ra- Mons Goblin Raiders much more powerful in context than Merfolk of the Pearl Trident. I, I'm i not sure what else we have to say. It's ironic that Jeff Mengus did uh, both of these vanilla small um, small tribe creatures examples. <laughs> the, the card was printed Alpha Beta Unlimited, 4th edition, 5th edition, and then basically stopped there. It was in starter, actually a couple different starter sets after that, but the last time it was really in a set was 5th edition. Which is interesting as compared to, say, Merfolk of the Pearl Trident, just because they got the memo about making more indifferent <laughs> aggressive creatures right off the bat in Alpha, right? We got Goblin Bloom Brigade, but it also extended much more rapidly to goblins than it ever did to Merfolk. There were much more different and diverse goblins earlier in the game. I just want to say that as we've gone through these kind of generic cards that were turned into some sort of flavorful card, like Merfolk became Merfolk of the Pearl Trident, goblins mm-hmm. became... They really hit it out of the park with these names. Like oh, yeah, it gives them Mons so Goblin. much good context. Yeah. <laughs> great, great name for a magic card. Yeah, absolutely. And aside from the name, Unchanged from Lattimore Gamma. Helps. Yeah. Well, next up, Steve, we have the Ubiquitous Mountain. Uh, we've already covered some basics, right? So we can skip a lot of the this, preamble here and talk about, I guess, our favorite arts. These yes, are, this is one make, of my favorite segments. <laughs> one is, of my favorite segments. <laughs> and these mountains especially are just incredible, like oil painting, uh, Doug Schuler, of course. Just three different, incredibly different and beautiful renditions. I love every single one of these mountains, in, in, in my opinion. So we are going to talk about all three of them in limited edition, the two in alpha and then the third in beta. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's help our audience along by identifying A, B, and C, Kevin. 
Uh, do you want to take the first stab at describing yeah, them? Please. How do you distinguish them? Well, oh, I was inviting no, you no, to do I, it. I okay. really want you so, to. You, this a, is, okay. I mean, I love this topic, so B, but you've done more of this ABC business than so I have. So B, B is, I think, called the Blue Mountain, if that helps. B for blue. Yeah, the blue B sky blue. and also the Blue Mountain. Yeah, that's easy enough. Right. And then C is what I call the Arabian Mountain, because it's the one Arabian Nights. Mm-hmm. So by process of elimination. That's more brown. Yeah, it's reddish, browner. Um, I, I'm not familiar enough with mountain ranges to sort of give you uh, an earth-based <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, kind of contextual referent. Um, and nor am I. But <laughs> I mean, I do live in the in the kind of a, around a lot of mountain ranges, mountains, um, Mount well, Tam, Mount Diablo. But it, it's pretty clear that these were. I mean, these are evoking the Rockies pretty thoroughly, though. Fair enough. I mean, it could, looks to me it could be as much the Himalayas or some sort of Alaskan mountain range. <laughs> I guess the second one, B, the blue one, evokes more Alaskan stuff to me. Although I've never been to Alaska, but it, I used to I used to put Alaskan photographs of the Alaskan wilderness onto my home screen desktops in college. So I enjoyed <laughs> I enjoyed photography of Alaskan wilderness. I anyway. I mean. C, I would say the the one in Arabian Nights looks a little bit more arid to me, a little less kind yes. of deciduous. Um, Although a, evergreens feature prominently in all three of them, that's true. <laughs> yeah, you've got these some very lo- tall uh, pines, <laughs> and, uh-huh. especially <laughs> yeah, in A. <laughs> the, yeah, some some Bob Ross stuff going on here. Mm-hmm. Um, they're all they're, they're they really are nice. To your point, um, I just wanted to say though that. A and B are really interesting, but I find it interesting that they selected C for inclusion into Arabian Nights. Yes, I agree. Like, I wonder the one if, that's the one that's not in Alpha is the one that's Arabians. Go ahead. I, I wonder if it's because they wanted to get more copies of the the C lands into circulation. I wouldn't be surprised, though. I cannot prove this, of course, that the five lands that were originally slated for Arabians Nights were all the C lands, right? Yeah, but there's a certain logic to that. <laughs> yeah. yeah the the uh, i uh the mountain a is the one that is the most i would argue gray if if that's a acceptable descriptor it's clearly a snow-capped mountain but not all the way down like the the b the blue mountain implies uh, basically a snow-covered mountain all, almost all the way to the bottom there's the implication of that whereas you said the c is more arid no no real strong implication of snow although some could be implied i suppose the the sea art is the one that is the most saturated too, especially as between uh, beta and then subsequent printings. Part of that we well know is because beta is oversaturated in certain cards, especially those that were added between alpha and beta, as you've observed. The, there's a pretty strong difference between the expression of color in the beta sea mountain as between the Arabians ostensibly sea mountain. Yeah. You can catch a lot more detail on the ground in the mountain because it's less washed out. And I would argue the color balance well, is probably more accurate to the painting in Arabian Nights. The, but the B, beta, just in general, we've already said this, mm-hmm. but for all the cards that were corrected from Alpha or reinserted, the colors mm-hmm. are, the the saturation is much thicker and darker. And that yes. is true of this card. So, so just to be clear, the beta version of Mountain Sea is much darker than the Arabian Nights version of it. To the to degree that most of the blacks are crushed and certain in the yeah. shadows of the mountains, the blacks it, are all crushed, which I think is probably not especially loyal to the original art. It almost looks like Kevin, 
I don't know. It almost looks like it's like charcoal haze, smoky haze. <laughs> that too. You know, in the- yeah, the, the Arabian's Mountain makes it pretty clear that there's some blue sky going on with some nice clouds coming over the mountains. It looks like, you know, a cloudy day. The <laughs> the original beta version looks like what California looks like these days. <laughs> yep. like oppressively smoky, orangey, foggish. Uh, yeah. So, Steve, um, t- tell me about your favorite as between A, B, and C. Well, well, before I do that, I just wanted to say that um, I don't actually know the explanation for why this mountain is in Arabian Nights. There are, you know, I was looking to try and see in my book of collector's history book to see if there's an explanation. I can't remember whether I knew it or forgot. One person here says that it was originally included as a placeholder and then <laughs> printed by accident. There are, of course, rumors at one point that Arabian Nights was going to include a new color and that people assumed that the mountain was going to be, like maybe desert was going to be the color yellow or something. Mm. Um, I don't know. Do you happen to know the explanation for this? My understanding of it could be apocryphal. We know well that Richard Garfield intended and indeed lobbied hard for the the subsequent expansions to Magic to have different backs, right? There's yes, the famous, that's definitely part. That's known. The, yeah, the famous purple back for Arabian Nights that was planned all the way up till right before release, basically. It's my understanding that since it was intended to have different backs, it was intended to be played separately, which is why all of the original basics yeah. were included in the sheets. And then when the it was transitioned more to a modern expansion, the lands weren't needed and the they were removed, but the mountain was left in by mistake. That's my that's that, my understanding of the situation. So in the that's yeah, in the collector's history of Magic the Gathering on page thirty six it says let me get to the relevant part. It says Richard made a last minute decision to keep the old backs. Mm-hmm. They called Cardamundi, which had already set up cards to print and discussed other options for dis- differentiating the cards. They considered giving the cards different colored borders, but it was feared that after a few sets, this would be confusing. Cardamundi said they could switch the old printing plates for the backs, but if the new films for the fronts were run, they would have to use new backs because those were the only films they had online. So Wizards asked what changes they could make without creating new films. And there's a longer discussion here, but Wizards essentially decided to use a scimitar for the symbol, um, which Christopher Rush and Myfers and Howell chose on the spot on the card, which would be which was unused to put on it. Um, <laughs> I don't see anything here about the mountain, though. I think, I think so it says a little bit above that. It says the original plan was to give the different card backs, which we know. They, they, the new backs were designed, purple and gold, and <laughs> appeared on the packaging. Um, but again, nothing... It, it's unclear. I mean, it would make sense, though, that the expansion would be designed to play standalone, and that you would have basic lands, presumably the Cs of all the versions, you know, version Cs, I just don't understand how that leads to mountain being here. <laughs> it's very confusing. Well, I mean, my understanding is simply that it's a mistake. That's that's all there is to it. That well, all that's five clear. of the, the version C lands were on the sheet. What's the source of the, the mistake? Sheet. Well, I mean, what's the source of any mistake? Why were why was it circle <laughs> protection missing from Alpha? These things happen, right? It's just copy yeah. editing. And this is we're talking about a small company, a small fledgling company at this time. And they were, I mean, they were still debating fundamental issues to the game, like the card backs up until the last minute before printing. So mistakes are easy to make. Yeah. It's, uh, I also want to give a side uh, plug for Mark Rosewater's podcast, his semi-daily podcast, because back, I mean, he's done zillions of episodes. He's up to 780 something episodes, but they're, and they're usually pretty bite-sized, like half an hour. He, back in the 750 range, 
couple months back, he uh, interviewed some early names in Magic. And I don't remember which show it was, but he talked specifically about what happened at this time and the debate they had about the cardbacks. He has episode 750 that has Scaphalias. He has episode 744 with Eric Lauer. He has episode 737 with Richard Garfield. And there's a couple other old school, uh, longtime uh, R&D members like Aaron Forsyth in that range, too. I don't remember which episode it was in there, but he definitely addresses some of these early game uh, situations. Yeah, behind the scenes sort of things. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's let's <laughs> let's talk about our favorites. So, Kevin, gun to your head, you're building a deck. You have to choose one of the three. Which do you use? A, B, or yeah. C? Yeah. In this case, uh, as I said earlier, I really enjoy all of them. I genuinely do. And so it's really just a matter of um, playing to the the kind of features that I look for in these ABU lands, and it's C because of the darker, yeah. the really intense, um, uh, the just the really intense colors and saturation. It plays the darkest to me, and I just really like it. So I I enjoy all of them a lot, but C is the one for me. So that means you're playing with Beta Arabians instead of Alpha Kevin. <laughs> I own a single Arabians copy of this, but I do have several Betas. That's right. <laughs> my my well, i have a set of of all old lands from when i draft and my uh, and most of them are signed because i've seen most of those artists throughout the years and so yeah i have a whole bunch of these c's for draft oh, oh that's a great point the douglas schuler signature is really cool oh yeah really um, enjoy his signature very stylistic really lets the card pop so i've already so what the the two basics we've covered already are island and forest right we haven't gotten to plains we haven't gotten to swamp so right. we're, this we're at the halfway mark with this I don't have a strong preference like I do with with the islands and the forest. And I also don't have a strong preference, like dislike in terms of one that I, I I basically view them as somewhat fungible. Um, (laughs) It just depends. I mean, I really think there's something nice about the, about the bee, the blue, the blue mountain. There are days when I think it just looks really, I don't know. I think the mountain is, feels really prominent in the, in the, the frame. And it looks nice, and it, I think it actually. You know what it is? It's just a. De- it depends on the contrast. It just depends on what you're playing it with. I think that the art pops depending on what you're playing it with. I think if you're playing mm-hmm. green with this blue mountain, it's it's not as nice. If I'm playing green, I probably want C, because the green seems to contrast nice more nicely with the C art. If you're playing, sure. if you're playing blue or white. I think I like B. I think maybe I don't know. And I think if I'm playing red black, I think I like A better. But let me let me not fudge or hedge so much. Let me just be straight <laughs> up. My favorite so I like alpha a lot better than beta. So that inclines me to A or B, right? Yeah. But you can't beat playing a mountain that has a sword on it. And there's no and, and there's no strategic downside anymore because City in a Bottle doesn't destroy it, which it used right, to right. do. <laughs> so if I'm, I'm going to cheat a little bit and say my favorite mountain from limited edition is the Arabian Night Mountain. Wow, big cheats, big cheats. But it's true, it's true. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. if I have to go after that, I think I take A or B just because it's alpha. I prefer alpha. I prefer the rounded corners after the sword. But you really can't go wrong with C either in beta version. Yeah. You just it's it's the the color is awesome. And that's the bottom line for me, is you can't go wrong. I mean, I'm not going to be disappointed seeing any of these in play. Yeah. <laughs> hey, 
Hey, but the Arabian Nights Mountain is a limited edition mountain. It's from limited edition. So <laughs> you are technically it's, it's, correct. The best kind of correct. <laughs> it's reprinted at Arabians. <laughs> and I just double checked. It turns out I have five of each art in my draft basics. But Phantom. one. Yeah, but one of the C's is an Arabians. Nice. So I've got. <laughs> I've got five of each. Sorry for the blur. I've got five of each and one of the... Oh, and they're all signed except for the Arabians so, one. So, so, obviously our viewers can't see this, our listeners can't see this, but when you fan them out like that, the C's really do pop the most. They look uh, the nicest. They absolutely do. They absolutely yeah. do pop the most. Yeah. If Your I was going to reach through the screen and take it, I would take the C's. <laughs> <laughs> Your point about pairing the B Blue Mountain with other colors, though, is very well made. I do think that the B Mountain would go very nicely alongside uh, ABU Island. So yes, yes. something to that. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm you glad that wanna, you brought you up some, some larger issues of aesthetics, not just purely the one card. I just, there's something weird about tapping the Blue Mountain to cast a Lanamore Elf. <laughs> you know, it's just, <laughs> I mean, it, it, I mean, well, you know what I mean. To play, uh, I, I do. let's say, yeah, when you have a Lanamore Elf in play, obviously you can't. <laughs> <laughs> I, I knew what you were getting at there, yeah. Yeah. All right. Fireball off of channel or something. Yeah. Well, Steve, I really enjoy talking about the basics and in this uh, in this set, and we fortunately we've got a few more to go. But I'm also really excited to talk about the next card. Well, the next five. That's right. Next, we have, of course, the Moxes: Emerald, Jet, Pearl, Ruby, Sapphire, or in Wooburg order, it would be <laughs> Pearl, Sapphire, Jet, Ruby, Emerald. These cards are obviously iconic in a unique way, I would argue, for Alpha. We've talked about iconic in terms of individual arts, right? The Black Lotus, for example. We've talked about iconic in terms of more PR-style arts, like the Herloon Minotaur, right? My experience with the early days of the game, and obviously I didn't start in Alpha, but my experience was that the, the Moxes really weren't used for marketing purposes. I, didn't, I wasn't exposed to them the way you are to Shivan Dragon, right? in the early days of the game, the Sarah Angel, mm-hmm. that kind of thing, which I think is a pity because they're really incredible. Obviously now for you and I, they've come to be symbolic of, for, for especially vintage, but you know, old school, early days of magic, as well as symbolic of power. And at the same time, they have just incredibly deep strategic and tactical implications for every format that they're legal in. So we could talk a lot on simply every front for these, and I'll defer to you in terms of where we really begin. <laughs> well, I want to talk about the concept of a mox first. I love it. So the word mox is derived from, it's kind of an old-timey, vaudeville <laughs> type slang term, right? Of Someone mm-hmm. has moxie. You'll see it like in, uh, I guess, film noirs, you know, things like that, where and so the cons- the word is basically means like energy or vigor. Um, I find it to be a fascinating idea that that the designers of Magic and Richard Garfield wanted to put into the limited edition these very powerful, uh, you know, I guess you would call it uh, precious stone based power sources, mm-hmm. and they made them moxen. <laughs> they could have been called crystals or gems, right? Like emerald, the gem gem emerald or something like that. But mox. Mm-hmm is so much more flavorful and so yeah. much more original yeah, and creative. Absolutely. And <laughs> it's just so cool. And um, 
and also to give one obviously in each in each color is is a necessity but also shows something fundamental i think what i think that's just so cool so i i mean do you want to say anything about the selection the 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 term and then the selection of of the gems for each of the colors the magic is the only context i mean i know the word moxie right but it's it's so retro magic is the only context where i ever think of this word or use it or it's it's kind of the only (laughs) it's the only grounding i have for the word which i find interesting another element of it too is that these objects are portrayed as jewelry they're, they're pictured on the cards, obviously, as as jewels. Hang, they're pendants, right? Hanging from, from chains. Right. And yet, we almost never think of them or see them in that context. The implication, of course, is that a, a planeswalker or wizard is wearing what, these or a collection yes. of these and drawing power from them. Yes. <laughs> uh, and similar to a ring or, a, you know, a, a, some other kind of pendant or, a, you know, a bracelet or something like that. A bracelet. I find that fascinating that 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 context is actually mostly lost in both in universe because it's never mentioned in, in like in the stories or where you know where you know the, the wizard clutched her mocks to her chest and, and summoned some energy <laughs> or whatever. You know, we just never do that or say that. And so I find no. it interesting that the the gem part of these has vastly overshadowed the implications of how they're used in in world in universe, and this pattern the way we view these cards in practice in the game and the fact that they're you know the their function in the universe is elided basically from jewelry is continued in all the reinterpretations we've seen of them <laughs> famously the magic online vulcan baga art right the, yes. the you only ever see hands clutching them similar yeah. for something like mox opal for example chrome mox is t- entirely devoid of context as a as a piece of of jewelry Mox Amber ostensibly looks like a piece of jewelry, but it's you see it coiled on a table. A Mox Tantalite is completely inexplicable. And Mox <laughs> Tantalite continues the pattern of some of the more recent reinterpretations, like the 14, 15, 16 uh, vintage championship cards where the Moxen are just on a pedestal, you know, devoid, like just being revered on a pedestal. I just find that but very interesting. But you never see them actually generating power. You, you don't see them generating, you don't see them used in any way. You could argue that Vulcan Baga's like his Mox Ruby has a little bit of um, a little bit of power emanating from it, perhaps. But the simple truth is, it's they're almost always devoid of context, which I find they're interesting. Just, they're just trophy pieces, is basically the way they're yeah. presented. Right? Exactly, exactly. It's it's like in a case that you would go buy like a jewelry store or something, or <laughs> right? I always found that odd. I always kind of envisioned a very powerful, especially an, an ancient wizard who'd been around and, and gathering things. Picture yourself as the, <laughs> the lead character in the old Microprose game, right? You're traveling the countryside, you know, defeating monsters <laughs> and, and searching through dungeons and finding treasures. And you just, you would put the next one around your neck, right? And go on to the next one. <laughs> and by the end, you'd look like Mr. T. But the point is that the... Uh, I, I always love the fact that there's only one of these ever that's ever been depicted worn by a person, and it's the Mox Lotus, humorously from Unhinged, uh. that shows a woman actually wearing the brooch, or, you know, the the pendant. Anyway, that you know, in the universe, I think it's very interesting uh, culturally how these things are interpreted anymore, and it's it. There's no better representation of that for me than the fact that um, I have altered Moxen as part of my mm-hmm. vintage playable altar set. And in every case, the chain has been removed from the altar 
to put just the pendant or just uh. the stone as the centerpiece and no longer part of a necklace. It's so culturally ingrained in me that I asked all my altruists to do that. I think as between the two options of designing the card, the image of for the mox, the moxen or the moxes, mm-hmm. that are represented as like trophy pieces or sitting in a case and being used in some form or manner, I think I prefer the way they are now. I just have to yeah. say that. I do think it makes them feel a little more common and less special to have them just worn around your neck. There's no doubt about that. At the same time, that feels like the way they were conceived, but culturally we have moved beyond that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um a couple things so shifting out of the, you know, the imagery, uh these are beautiful pieces of art, but Kevin they are also something that when you get your first mocks, there is like a rush and a thrill and a power to oh, yeah. it. Yeah. There are few cards that I have seen over the years, on, especially on social media, where players will post the accomplishment of acquiring a card. And a lot of that is due to economics, right? And Which is sad but true. But that doesn't change the fact that there's a, there's a, a very palpable cachet and mystique to these cards for a number of reasons. And I can't tell you how many times I've seen posts by, by friends and strangers alike that said, I finally did it. I finally got my mock <laughs> Sapphire. Here it is. Here I am holding it. You know, I'm a member of the club now. And while I don't right. enjoy and celebrate the expense of these cards and or the eliteness right. of them, I do enjoy the sense of accomplishment and community that, that some people achieve when they get one. Well said. Well said. The, uh, the other thing is, I think that the fact that they are representing gems, precious gems, jewelry, you know, actually makes the experience of acquiring one feel even sweeter because it feels like you've really gotten a precious gem or precious jewel. You know, it's a precious to- tool sure. in your deck. Um, given that the fact that each of these represents a precious stone, Kevin, just artistically, both design and also imagery, do you have a, a favorite? Uh, yeah, it's hard to say. It's kind of a tie between Jet and Sapphire for me. Part of that is because oh, Sapphire <laughs> has such increased power as compared to the rest in, in context, right? Mm-hmm. And also because the Sapphire is um, such a compelling shape. I just really, I don't know the name of yeah. that cut. I, I, I wish I could tell you. I'm, I'm not an expert in jewelry or cuts. But the name of that cut, or the, sorry, the style of that cut is, is just really evocative to me. And then It the looks jets, to me like a diamond cut, but... But yeah, yeah, I I forget what it's called. I I haven't been shopping for <laughs> for rings in a while, but I, <laughs> I I don't remember the name of it. But go ahead. Same here. Um, and the jet is more along the lines of all the times I can remember casting dark ritual off of a jet. <laughs> the jet oh, is, I, I find I find it really compelling due to the simplicity of its shape, and partly because of the five, the jet is the stone that I was not familiar with just culturally anecdotally coming into the game i knew about emerald pearls rubies and sapphires i wasn't familiar with jet and i would not have thought of it this way and so it has a certain novelty for me a certain mystery of sorts uh, from that standpoint as well so i want to draw attention to a couple of things and we haven't even gotten to the overwhelming strategic importance of these cards right um we'll, we'll get to that in a moment i find it interesting that dan frazier used vastly different background designs for each of these cards. Yeah. So you could imagine that given these are a set or what's the parlance today? It's the... Um, a cycle. A cycle, right. Mm-hmm. That you would have a very similar backdrop. 
So the jet has the kind of we call I don't know what we call it, the paint swirl, clear mm-hmm. paint swirl. The ruby has kind of a version of that, but it's more muddled. Mm-hmm. Um, the sapphire has almost like a kind of a a rock based background. the The emerald has a stone based background, and the the pearl has I think <laughs> the most vivid kind of granite. I don't know what you would call it. You know, concrete granite backdrop. Yeah. So it's it's interesting to me that the the emerald and the pearl have a clear kind of rock backdrop. The ruby and and the sorry the yeah the ruby and the jet have that kind of abstract paint swirl, and the sapphire is somewhere in between. What do you make of that? I have no idea. I would really like love to have been a fly on the wall in terms of art direction for these because it's very clear that uniqueness was a strong goal for the gems themselves. Mm-hmm. They each have their own identity, both in terms of cut and shape, color and setting. You know, they're they're all set in their own piece of jewelry in a, in a significantly yes. different way. We haven't even talked about that yet. Not yeah, much. I know. You- um, and, and <laughs> there's also the inexplicable connection between the Mox Jet and Force Field, yeah. which which we've talked about <laughs> well, already with Force Field, which can basically not be explained. Well, I I I surmise that. He used a print, like he took a piece of paper, right, and, uh-huh. and dipped it into the into the swirl, and then used part of that for jet and the other part for force field. <laughs> yeah, but that's the point: is that why would you choose exactly Mox Jet to choose that? <laughs> he had five well, choices here. I like- think he liked the pattern. Yeah, that's well. That's I think it's clear why he would reuse that pattern because the pattern's really cool. It is pretty. But what's unclear is why why one of the mocks has 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 that weird pattern. And yeah. then the others don't have very much of a pattern. They're, you know, look like granite on the background. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 like I said, I just wish I could be a fly on the wall and, and be part of that discussion because it's Mox Emerald's background is so plain. It's it's pretty clear what it's trying to evoke, right? But why would you have something that plain right next to Mox uh, Jet with its its strong and abstract swirling background? It, yeah, you, you, the- you could be excused for having a a piece of jewelry or a stone laid against a piece of another piece of stone, right? As part of the the whole pedestal concept, that makes some sense, right? It could be yeah. displayed that way. Why then is the jet and then the ruby to a slightly lesser extent in this contextless abstract background? I don't know. I would not have chosen chosen to do it this way, but I'm so hopelessly uh, used to it that I still like it. <laughs> Yeah, it's 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 fascinating. I mean, I don't know whether these are like limestones or quartzite or granite or whatever the case may be, but right. I mean, but for both the emerald and the pearl, I'm repeating myself. You get clearly there is a sedimentary rock, yeah, that against which this gem is this mox is laying against. Yeah, it's unclear in the case of the sapphire, but it's also clear in ruby and jet that it's just an abstract paint swirl in the background. So that's that's what's weird and inexplicable. I mean, one possibility, Kevin, again speculating, is that so he liked the swir- the paint swirl for Force Field and Jet. Maybe started with Jet because maybe he thought the Jet was going to be the hardest one to do, and then maybe did Ruby or Sapphire next, and then realized after he got to Sapphire that the more realistic sedimentary sedimentary lo- centi- sedimentary rock. Let me say that again. Sedimentary. <laughs> yeah, the sedimentary rock backdrop looked really nice and then made it more vivid as he went through emerald and pearl. It's also possibly starting the opposite direction, that he started with pearl and emerald and realized that it was painstakingly difficult to do that. And let me just <laughs> let me just slap it on a you know a swirl backdrop. 
There is a lot of paint, uh, pointillistic detail in the pearl background. That's well. That's what I was going to say. My yeah. favorite is the pearl. Yeah, and and I think it's because when you when you pick up the pearl, that very vivid. I don't know what is it. It's some sort of quartzite. <laughs> you know, uh, yeah. maybe it's more of a, a limestone. I don't know. Whatever it is, it feels much more tangible. Much more. Um, like you're holding an object of great power rather than just a representation of an object of great power. And I think when you acquire a pearl and you look at it, I think that, oddly enough, I think that feeling is more powerful with the white border. So if you're, if you're, if you're going along, look at the white border of Mox Pearl for a minute. Because I think that the white border actually makes the, the backdrop feel more vivid. And then the pearl itself yeah, you know, more dimensional out of that. Yeah, I'm and with the f- you. The feeling of holding it is just so intense. I no longer own a whiteboard. I have an Alpha Pearl, but it's very, it's very intense. It's, it's, <laughs> it, there's a, there's a jolt of energy when you, when you get your first one. It's like, wow, this is such a cool card. <laughs> I, I, I think that my favorite is my favorite is I think now obviously the experience of playing with the cards and. If you're a blue mage, sapphire, just, I mean, there are associations you can't put out of mind. Mm-hmm. But from a purely artistic representational perspective, and also from a kind of acquisitive, acquisitional collecting perspective, I think the pearl is just superlative in almost every respect. I think next for me in that, in that regard is the emerald. Because the emerald has the, what do you call it, set in these things. The emeralds, um, the little gremlin character that's holding it, the claw with by teeth and claw is just so cool. <laughs> I really love the setting for the emerald. I agree completely. I think it's interesting that there was an opportunity to set each of the gems in what would amount to a bit, a bit of a more flavorful and color pie aligned setting, right? Mm-hmm. If that were the case, and they each had more of a flavorful thing, I would have actually had this emerald setting be much more akin to the ruby because it evokes a goblin to me. Yeah. But it wouldn't take much shift in the features, the facial features of this setting to make it more of a green creature to me. That that much is not much of a reach. I think you could make a case that it would have been a cooler cycle if all the settings had been a, had a color-aligned feature to them as well. Yeah. Now, you, you make a good point. I think the setting for the ruby is the weakest. It doesn't feel very vivid. It almost feels too abstract. It flattens the, the, the gem. Really does. And the mm-hmm. gem itself really feels two-dimensional as well. Yes. I mean, there's even a, it's almost sloppy. There's a line out of the gem that's actually in the setting. It doesn't feel painted or three-dimensional at all. I think, so my, my order of favorite, just in terms of art, is pearl, emerald, sapphire, jet, and then ruby. There's an observation that, that owes to your description of flatness for the ruby and that is only three of these gems are casting a shadow ah great point and that goes to the that goes exactly to what i was talking about in terms of the abstract background versus the sedimentary rock background (laughs) exactly and and that owes i think a, a bit of credence to your idea that they were they may have been painted in one direction or another and at some point along the way it was either chosen that they were going to become out of context or put into a context but for one reason or another, only the three, uh, Emerald, Pearl, and Sapphire, which are ostensibly against rock backgrounds, are casting a shadow. 
and the Ruby and Jet are not. What's your least favorite of these? I think the Ruby is my least favorite for some of the reasons that you said as well. It really does look like strongly two-dimensional. I get that there's meant to be ostensibly some levels or some layers, maybe some roundness to the setting, but it and there's obviously shadowing to that degree, but the shadowing is symmetrical like along the bottom of the thing, which suggests it's suggests it's maybe top lit. But then you look at the top edge and there's obviously some lighter light source on the upper right, which suggests that the shadowing on the bottom, like the bottom 60% of the thing, which is just uniform from left to right, is incorrectly rendered. I think if you look at the the jet by comparison, there's almost no, there's just almost no shadowing on the setting at all, but there's a very clear light source on the stone. Mm-hmm. Similar to if you look at the pearl, right? The, the light source yes. is, is upper right. And, and shadowing is, is offset to reflect that, similar with the emerald. You see the color gradient as the light plays throughout the stone, and the bottom is much darker. The ruby is just missing that, at least in the setting, and so it, it contributes to it looking two-dimensional. There's some good play That's with color and the refraction on the stone itself, but unfortunately, because of the way our eyes play with a complex cut like that, it's not actually evoking, it's not evoking a light source for my eyes. It, it, when I see the stone devoid of context, I couldn't tell you where the light's coming from. And I think right. I think that's a, a testament to how it doesn't play three-dimensionally. It. Yeah, yeah. it's it's interesting. There is definitely a shading of light on the jet. It's just, um, and there's a little bit on the ruby, but in the ruby setting, not the ruby itself. Yes. But the ruby just doesn't glitter. It doesn't, Yeah. You know, there's no interior it's, light source that reflects back out that would give it a dimensionality. It's clear to me that the light is meant to be coming from the same place in all five of these, and it's just not, the effect is not right on the ruby. Yeah. <laughs> this isn't meant to be a critique, you know, bashing the ruby, but <laughs> yeah. appreciation for the other ones. Yeah, it works much better in the others. And the shadow obviously plays with that, right? The shadow goes down and to the left on those three that have it. Boy, that emerald is so cool with the gremlin really is. eating the... So what? So what's your favorite top to bottom in terms of the aesthetics? Uh, number one is Sapphire, number two is Jet, number three is, I think, Emerald, then Pearl, then Ruby. Fair. Yeah. So, so here's the thing that's interesting. I, I wrote an article for the Magic the Gathering homepage years ago, Kevin, on Type 1. It was designed as an introductory article to the format for, to Vintage, for Vintage players. And one of the things I said is I said that, that Moxon are not just a, option for vintage, they're a kind of rule of the format, meaning that their mere existence fundamentally shapes the strategic possibilities in the format distinct from other formats. So I've lost track of all the constructed formats these days. Let me just see if I can rattle them off. Modern, (laughs) historic, standard, vintage, legacy, and extended? (laughs) Extended is long gone. Pioneer is one. Pioneer? Uh, I knew I would mess it up. And there's a couple others like Brawl and Pauper. God! Well, what, clearly what distinguishes Vintage from all the all the rest is these five cards, more than basically anything else. Yeah. This These five cards are the, def- I mean, the fundamental distinction between these and Legacy, right? Yes. The close cousin of Vintage. And what these five cards... I think it's fascinating that they came in five. I think it's fascinating that you have seven-card hands and 60-card decks, Kevin, because <laughs> the math basically works out that five out of seven out of 60 means that you have a, de- a really good chance of getting one, a reliable chance of getting one in your opening hand. You mean a deck that has a single copy of each mox and is a 60-card deck? 
Yes, you just summarized okay. it more clearly, but that's my point. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't sure right. that's what you were getting at, but I get you now. Right, that you will, over time, consistently draw one of these in your opening hand. Now, not 100%. By consistently, I mean over 50%, right? Right. Or thereabouts. And that fundamentally changes everything. Because in Legacy, where you can play a one-drop on turn one, in Vintage, you can consistently play a two-drop on turn one. Whether it's Dark Confidant, or Quarian Dryad, or Illusionary Mask, or with a Mishra's Workshop, a, a Lodestone Golem, or a Juggernaut, or a Suchi, right? And so, fundamentally, Vintage leaps every other format in terms of speed on turn one, owing to this cycle of cards. It, and so it fundamentally changes everything. It means that you can cast, you know, turn one survival or whatever the case may be. Now, obviously the fact that you don't, can't get consistent blue-blue or black means that we're talking about using these mana functionally as generic, right? Generic mana. Mm-hmm. And that's basically what we did in, in the mask deck. It's generic colorless mana, or to be precise, I guess generic, right? Not colorless. Yes. Not colorless technically, um, generic mana. <laughs> right. And then, it, you know, with a land, consistent turn one, Dark Confidant in those decks, consistent Quarian Dryad in the Grow decks. I mean, what are some other examples, Kevin, from back in the day? You go Mox Land, land it. What is it? Uh, back in the day, I'm not sure how far back you're talking about, but uh, let's say Merchant Scroll is the one that I there remember. There you go. That's Demonic a great Tutor. one. Yeah, Merchant Scroll, especially pre-restriction, right, was a, yes. was a classic one. Yes. That's part of the reason why the Gifts deck was so potent. Yep, exactly right. And so that is, if that's fundamentally the distinction between vintage and any other format, then obviously it means that null rod and null rod effects are essentially an anti-rule to the format. They Mm -hmm. attack the format at a very fundamental level, which in fact they do. (laughs) And that's why hate bearers decks and that kind of deck have always had a strong presence in the format, especially in paper vintage, less so, Mm -hmm. less so in, in, in Magic Online. Not, not because they're not powerful. Collector's Oof is immensely powerful. Stony Sun. But because the capacity to acquire these cards is so much easier <laughs> in in Magic Online, yeah. Um, and th- th- so what you're getting at is that Null Rod has classically been a budgetary option historically. Of course, there are people who play Collector's Oof intentionally and for <laughs> <Naturally>. good reasons. <laughs> Stony Silence intentionally, yeah. Um, but these cards, I just find it so interesting whether it's fortuitous or not, by design or fortuitous, the fact that you get 5, 7, 60, that that ratio mm-hmm. works so well. You know, if it had been 6, it would almost be too consistent. You would get, you would be <laughs> flooded. In terms of, you know, if your goal was just to play Mask on turn 1, I guess I guess if you want to play Mask, you'd also want to play Not. But the point <laughs> is, let's suppose all you wanted to do was play a turn 1 Merchant Scroll or a turn 1 Dark Confidant, right? Yeah. This ratio gives you basically the the perfect without getting flooded in Moxen way of doing that, right? Without getting flooded in off color Moxen, I should say, right? Yeah. If you're just playing a yeah. blue black deck, and you don't want you know to get too many, like if there had been a six color, I'm not sure if you you probably play it, you know, depending on the mana base, but it basically works out just perfectly. I I don't know. I mean, Gifts would have played it. I don't know that. A kind of a growish deck. I don't think Grow would have wanted a six. I don't a, think Grow a, a fourth, would have wanted it. Yeah. Right, a fourth off color Mox. And in fact, in many cases, the Grow deck or the Bob deck often just ran four of these. Right, not. Yeah. I can, you know, not the fifth. But I just find that it's just perfect. Right, that that ratio exists is just to me a point of almost. I mean, it's beyond the ability of someone to design. 
it's it's like I'm not uh, without being supernatural about it, it feels almost providential you know it's just perfect it's worth noting that there was a long stretch in vintage where playing all five moxen in decks where they maybe weren't ideal was still kind of a given in the early days for me at least around the turn of the century we would just jam all five moxen into some decks that by today's standards you never would it's actually a bit of a contemporary development and by contemporary i'm talking about it might be as long as 10 years now but but it was there was a shift yeah. in the culture of deck construction for vintage to play only on color moxen it was actually a noticeable change when Jess Guy, for example, only ran yep. the three that were on color. Right. And I ran. I went up to five for mentor, for mentor and Jace Fringe Prodigy. Right. But before that, even with Pyromancer, I'll tell you when the change happened. When you, well, finish your thought, and then I'll talk about when the, <laughs> the transition from five to two or three occurred. Yeah, I just, I just want to point out that it, there was a, a point in time when even, even any deck that didn't have a, a need for them necessarily, a, a purposeful tactical need, would still just run them all. And I think it was culturally ingrained for good reason. But as time went on, we got a little more purposeful and sophisticated. I think about our color selection, and now only playing on colors is a bit more of a standard for Xerox decks. Yeah, uh, but go ahead and make your point, please. Well, when Lodestone Golem was printed, you were heavily incentivized to play all five. Very. To, especially if you were playing a multicolor control deck, you needed to accelerate out. And so the Dark Confident Bob decks that were developed against, you know, like Mark Lenegro's deck, I assume had all five, right? The Grixis yeah. decks generally ran all five. But there was a period, I think it was around 2013, and it was around when Delver of Secrets, Secrets was printed. Well, Delver of Secrets came out in, was it Innistrad in 2011, right? Is that right? Yeah. But there was, I think it was around 2012 is when this occurred. In 2012, so yeah, in 2011, people were all playing all five Moxon, lots of gift decks still, um, you know, like uh, East Coast Winds, things like that. But around 2012, Kevin, there was a shift, and it started with Blue Red, and then it was Rug. And it was really around Delver, and then Delver and Pyromancer, when people abandoned the, the off-color Moxon. And they did it, I think, for a couple of key reasons. The first was that there was a recognition that to, de- to defeat some of these really good Snapcaster decks, you needed to be have virtual card advantage to the max, to the hilt. Mm-hmm. And so these blue-red decks that were built around Delver, like obviously Delver of Secrets, you don't need another a Mox to facilitate it out, right. right? So I think Delver kind of opened the way to deck design where you were not reliant on the mocks for your grow, growing creature. And, and Delver was really more important in many respects than the, and then, and then Young Pyromancer was printed. So Pyromancer came out in M14, which came out the summer of 2013. And even as Pyromancer was grafted into these Delver decks, it was the secondary tool. It was like they were Delver first. Delver was off, I mean, it was like Delver, Hyper Delver with Spell Pierce. You know, you didn't need a Mox to cast a Mana Leak. You had Spell Pierce, Kevin, right, and then Flusterstorm right. and, and Misstep. And so all of those things came together. Delver, Misstep, Spell Pierce, and it ge- generally pushed out the Mox. Mm-hmm. And and so I think that's really the turning point. And then people realized, and then as Pyromancer became the secondary and then the primary card, the Moxen disappeared until until Monastery Mentor. Mm-hmm. I if, if there's things I could go back and change in Magic, a handful of, uh, there are five things I wish I could go back and change in terms of my deck design over a period. <laughs> it was being wedded to not playing off color Moxon when Mentor came out. 
If I had yeah. just gone all in in my VSL season two with five Moxen, I would have been able to jam it because the Moxens were so synergistic with Mentor. <laughs> yeah, there's almost no drawback to them, right? Yeah. Because they came with a monk even on the average game. Yeah, even a top deck Mox generated a monk and gave you power, powered up your army. Right. That was one thing I would like to take back. I was so obsessed with virtual card advantage that I lost sight of the forest for the trees, that mm. the inherent synergy with Mentor. But I think that was when people started adding them again. And then the restriction of Mentor turned back to the previous trend, where now in Bug and Jeskai and all these other decks, because there is no Mentor, it's restricted. You know, of course you get one, but you're not building around it. That you're back to the on colors, yeah. yeah. That's at least my narrative for that sh- that pattern. Well, that's a big and, one. And, you hit you hit on the things I wanted to touch on too, with respect to the fact that when you go back to the f- the five mox era, your decks were f- more likely to be filled with cards that you could actually put two to three um, off color mana into. Right, thirst gifts for knowledge, given, gifts given, factor a, fiction, a yes. tinker. You know. Uh, back in, in the sla- in the control slaver eras, right? You had big artifacts that you either needed to tinker out or weld in, right? Or thirst away, right? The mocks were just so synergistic with all those things. And then, and 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 you hit the nail on the head with Delver. the The era spell pierce really was a, a big pivot in addition to Delver, but spell pierce in particular, I think, was a pivot into an era where you could expect to your your whole plan could revolve around spells of a single mana. Right. At which mox, point drawing uh, drawing a mox jet in a Dover deck was pointless, right? Right. Island go yeah. and, and you, you drew a mox, that could have been a misstep. That could have been a fluster storm. That could have been a spell pierce. Right. That emerald right. or the jet. And, yeah. And there's another related element to this, Steve, that I want to remind our audience about, and it's one that we've talked about many, many times over in reviewing cards with respect to mana costs. And that's how increasing the designated colors of mana on cards even at the lowest level from one to two from two to three has a huge impact on their playability in vintage you and i always talk because about of this yeah yeah a two designated spell like lavinia for example in practice costs about two and a half mana in vintage it's because, a turn two play instead of a yeah, turn one that's right because you can't bridge the mocks to to it exactly exactly and so there's a, a really big price to pay for extra designated mana on even two mana effects in vintage because of the structural importance and the effect of the moxen. Great point. So a bit of a history lesson, Steve. Do you remember off the top of your head how many moxes there are in Magic? How many cards with mox in the title? <laughs> oh, God. Um, I don't so expect diamond, you to know the number. But. Diamond, Opal, Tantalite, Crystal. And then, of course, the Crystal's <laughs> not a real one. That's Crystal's the not a real color. one. That's the five-color uh, one. There, what's the one that's so? There's one. There's one. I can't. Ah, uh, God. I've so opal <laughs> is the sixth best mox. It's it's right. amazing. Right. Uh, you got chrome. You got chrome, tantalite. I didn't mention. I didn't mention chrome, but I was. Well, just I thought about you got to. chrome. No, I said. I said. You uh, said crystal. Opal. I thought. I thought you were referring to chrome when you said crystal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> tantalite. There's the. There's one that taps for legendary permanence. Mm-hmm, from Dominaria. That's Mox Amber. So Amber, you've named yeah. all of the functional ones for Vintage. There are two others that are not legal because they're from Unhinged, and that's Jack and the Mox and Mox Lotus. So <laughs> in practice, there are 12 cards. Um, in function, there are 10 because two of them are, are, are silver-bordered, right? And it's an interesting progression over time, too, because 
if you look at them in order of release, you've got the original five from Alpha, and then you've got quite a stretch, although not very long by today's standards, but quite a stretch until Stronghold with Mox Diamond. Right. Mox Diamond was a coup, right? That was a, yeah, a big moment, and people really were was. super, super excited to have our, our first new Mox since the beginning of the game. Well, then there's another really long stretch, because it's not until Mirrodin that we get Chrome Yes, Mox. yes. And Chrome Mox was a coup, too, because... It followed in the model of Mox Diamond, meaning you had to commit another card to it, but it did so in a dramatically different way because it didn't have to be a particular type of card. Okay, it had to be one with color, so there's there's something to that. But Chrome Mox opened up a whole bunch more options because it was so much more friendly to monocolored strategies, for example, whereas obviously yes. Mox Diamond pushes multicolor strategies. Well, there was a recognition when Chrome Mox came out that that imp- that most decks have more spells than land. And exactly. therefore, Chromox is more reliable than Mox Diamond. Exactly. But but there were definitely people who played Mox Diamond even when they probably shouldn't have. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. You know? Um, Evaluating Mox Diamond's uh, utility and effect on deck construction and gameplay is really... It's still tricky to this day. In, right? in the year 2000, it was even more so because you didn't have the data to yeah. compare with like Chrome Mox and, and Mox Opal to see kind of what the micro advantages, situational advantages and disadvantages were. Exactly. Yeah. Mox Diamond continues to be a fascinating uh, deck design uh, puzzle. Well, it's obviously incredibly synergistic in lands decks, both in Legacy and Vintage. Because that you know, upends the ratio you referred to. Right. When you've got Life from the Loam and... I don't know, uh, fast bonds, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, in Legacy, it's exploration, but yes. And then, so th- so we have just, long periods. Just to, just to be clear, let's put, a, let's put a bow on that. Tantalite does what? Which one is that? Tantalite's the newest one from Modern Master, uh, sorry, Modern Horizons. It's the one that has suspend. It taps for any color, but ah. it has suspend three. Yeah. Ah. So it obviously then- need not apply in a vintage context unless you're in the business of searching your library for something like with Tezzeret, but no one ever does that. If there was some effect that was vintage playable that reliably let you search your library for things at, at cheap costs, Tantalite would immediately go up in value because it's actually, once it's in play, it's actually the best box. Yeah. It's just, you have to cheat it into play in order to get it in a timely fashion. Well, Mox Diamond also taps for any color. Um, right, but, but there's no way to get a diamond into play without losing the land is the thing. You can get a Tantalite so into play without losing anything else. Are Chrome, Diamond, Tantalite, and Amber all legal in in EDH? Uh, yes. In fact, all the mocks, and except the original five, well, and Jack and the mocks, but all of the, except for the originals, are legal. So Diamond, opal. Ma- uh, Chrome, Opal, Amber, and Tantalite are, and they're all played to different degrees in different decks. But I imagine Mox Diamond is a puzzle for EDH players. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, and it's part of the reason why Mox Diamond is now the second most expensive one and rising. It, over the, especially over the last couple of years. I mean, you you know this. You, we've talked about this offline, but regular old Mox Diamonds are now up to 400 bucks. Yeah, like, I just sold a bunch of them. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Yeah. And EDH is the primary reason for that. Yeah, cool. Great discussion. Um, yeah, and obviously the Moxen are here to stay uh, in terms of well, vintage, in terms of the culture, in terms of the zeitgeist of the game. Like, there's just... There's a, a, a cachet with it, and we're probably going to get more Moxen as new sets are printed, right? I mean, Modern Horizons is only, is only what, a year or two old at this point? It hasn't yeah. been that long since our last one, and it was only a year or two before that with uh, Dominaria and Mox Amber. So Wizards, you know, they they don't, they aren't fast about it, but they know where their bread is buttered, and they know that they, they can draw excitement for a new card by putting Mox in the title. 
I can't find it at the moment, but I remember there actually was a design for a Mox Crystal, an official one, I believe, that was yeah. going to go into Mirage that they took out. Yeah, I remember that, I, uh, and I, think I don't know what the source was. I think it might have just been a, a tap for colorless Mox, if I'm not mistaken. Which, by today's standards, would still be a way overpowered design. Oh, yeah. It would be automatically... <laughs> put, yeah. So here's the thing, Kevin. So just... I, I want to round out the the point in the context of Vintage, but but the... So whether it's... So it's what are the crucial plays that were enabled by landmarks on turn one? And we mentioned Query and Dryad is a, def- a format defining. Query and Dryad, Merchant Scroll for Gifts, Dark, um, Confidant. Dark Confidant for Mark Lenigra's deck. Yep. Um, certainly Young Pyromancer is up there. Um, uh, one illusionary other, Mask. Illusionary Mask, Oath of Druids. Oath of Druids. Oath of Druids. Yep. Good <laughs> yeah, that, Very good there, there's that. Yeah. But one I don't want, I don't want our listeners to lose sight of or forget if they played back then. Was Landmox Mana Leak. Oh, yeah, I love it. For mono blue or even like heavy blue oath, you know, back in 2000, 2001, 2002, that being able to just play a land in a mox before Spell Pierce existed and have Counterspell up was very important, not just yeah. force. I even played a Prohibit for a while <laughs> in my <laughs> I, mono blue deck. Yeah, I remember to hit, that. To hit things like Query and Dryad, Illusionary Mask, Survival of the Fittest, Oath of Druids, all of those cards. Uh, Goblin Welder later. I think uh, we would be also remiss. Survival. If, survival being yeah, one. I think we'd be and, remiss if we didn't point out all of the two mana spells in workshops, right? Yep. All the spheres, all the ravagers and ballistas and hangerback walkers and revokers. Thalia's like, in. That, yeah, that, that whole workshop archetype is, is basically narrowed over the course of time to get away from five threes right and move all yes. the way toward i can operate my whole game plan with this wasteland the mox and this mox. And a waste. yep <laughs> yeah <laughs> obnoxiously so yeah <laughs> quite great point and phyrexian revoker is another example of that yeah yeah exactly. no the moxen really define it's like the submerged fact of of of, of it, there's a book called the submerged state about <laughs> the invisible role that kind of structures play in our society it's it that's an analogous to the role that Moxen play. Now, they're quite salient, they're quite visible, but their presence is so ubiquitous that we often lose sight of that salience. It's just because it's the yeah. play that they enable that yeah. becomes so critical. Yeah, absolutely. Well, they're just they're just so fantastic for all the reasons we've stated. We talked about the art, we talked about their play history. Obviously, they haven't been reprinted, and that's you know a major part, both of their mystique and the, the problem, right? Their cost. Uh, you and I, I know are both in favor of getting the the whole reserved list, but especially cards like this back into players' hands. That doesn't stop there from, from being a number of digital printings and other novelty printings as Eternal Weekend prizes are, you know, there have been multiples of each mox. And so if you go on Magic Online, there's a couple different arts. And if you go on to cards like Gatherer or Scryfall, you'll see more printings than there are really in practice because we've got the things like Collector's Edition and all that jazz too. The, so for every given mox, there's at least three arts, and I think in some cases four. I don't have a comprehensive memory of which ones have been done three or four times. And uh, just for the benefit of our audience, Steve, which one is it that you won? I won the Vulcanbaga Jet Art in 2007. Awesome. The, the one that was originally on Magic Online before they brought the, the Fraser ones. Yeah. Yeah, There's there's been so many since then. Yours is one of the first. It's It's pretty cool for that reason. It would be nice to earn another between the two of us. I tried this past weekend. <laughs> <laughs> we I know will, there was not a mox up for sale this past weekend, but uh, 
the, the trophy did. paintings. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Oh, I, and hopefully there will be many more for the rest of time. All right. Anything else on the moxes, Steve? All right. From ubiquitous to what does that card do? Obscure. <laughs> <laughs> We're talking next about natural selection. It costs G. It's an instant. It says, look at the top three cards of any player's library. You may opt to rearrange those three cards or shuffle the entire library. You might recognize this effect as most of Ponder. (laughs) 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 Granted, Ponder doesn't let you look at your opponent's library. It would be an awesome card if it did. Holy moly. Um, But yeah, this is the original. I mean, we... I don't want to over make this point overwrought, but this is the original cantrip, right? Like this is it doesn't does draw you a card, yeah. <laughs> which which is uh, meaningful. The fact that it does not draw you a card, but this does set up some design space that was later it's, adapted to be the modern cantrip design. Yeah, I would say that. So when cantrips first came in, they were mostly understood as slow trips. So yeah. I would distinguish. I would say it's the first. It's it's the first kind of tip of the library library manipulation spell. Yes. That be, that became kind of fused with cantrips. With cantripping, and beca- yeah. And you, yeah. So it's, I guess you could say it's, you know, part of the holistic design. Well, it's a, it's this, a shared parent, right? With yeah. The combination of this and the slow trips is why we ended up on Ponder, basically. And the like. Yeah. This card is so bizarre. I mean, so you've got this <laughs> strange tiger falcon hybrid animal holding yep. a essentially Strange, enigmatic red orb holding onto a rope-like staff on the other side. Like, what is going on here? <laughs> yeah, I and also that part is strange. I completely agree with everything you said. And then layer in the title of the card, Natural Selection, yes. which refers to obviously a, 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 a process in nature that this card kind of flaunts in the sense that yeah. are we meant to believe that this tiger bird was naturally this is, selected this or is, is it Darwin's the tiger bird performing concept. yeah it, well it, what i wonder though is is the bird the result of natural selection or is the bird <laughs> is performing this a Mar- natural selection yeah or is this an ironic title and this is a product of like dr moreau <laughs> Right, I could, I would accept any and all of those definitions. <laughs> the world <laughs> will never know. Yeah, that's right. This card's so weird, Steve. Have you ever cast this card? I cannot wait to do so. I own one in Alpha. I'm definitely going to play one in my Alpha League deck just because it's so cool. It's an instant too. <laughs> it's an instant too, which is yeah. just inexplicably powerful. Yeah, for the for the pre cantrip days. Yeah, this card is so wild. I, I have not not played it yet, but I can't wait to do it. It's also I on the can, reserve list. Yeah, which is a shame because there's just no point, right? Pure, <laughs> pure, pure collectability is the point, right? Yeah. In this case. It's not like anyone was ever casting this card. It's not like it was reprinted in Chronicles or anything. It's it's just a, an inexplicable rare in Alpha because I guess they thought that this kind of deck selection was risky, perhaps? I don't know why this is rare. It makes no sense to me. I also don't know why this is green, right? It, yes. It's green mainly yes. because of the title, I would argue. Yes. Because natural selection it's a shame that this title was used on this effect right because i can think of so many more mechanically oh. flavorful and interesting ways that the concept of natural selection could be uh, evoked in magic right there's so many cool ways that would actually involve changing creatures that would have been more good than instead of this this neutered ponder opt kind of business what a crime what a shame <laughs> card's cool i've never I don't think I've ever even held one of these. <laughs> this, the title of this card should have been called Squandered Opportunity. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Oh, jeez. It is kind of cool art, though. I mean, Mark Bull did a, a very effective job at rendering a tiger bird person. Yeah, <laughs> holding a, a weird red orb. Yeah, that's right. It's very convincing as that. All right, let's move on to oh, a personal favorite of mine, Nether Shadow. This card is so really? cool, and we're going to be talking about this this text for a bit. BB, you get summon Shadow. If Shadow is in graveyard with any combination of cards above it that includes at least three creatures. It can be returned to play during upkeep for its normal casting cost. Shadow can attack the same turn, summoned, or returned to play. Now, it's, it's pretty painfully obvious, Steve. Uh, yeah. Um, painful. S- Emphasis on painful. And So let's, let's be organized about this because I want to blather on for hours about this card. So where do you want to start? You want to talk about That's, its playability? No, in, text, text. You want to talk about its text first? Okay. It's very plain. Let me read the oracle text which is currently haste at the beginning of your upkeep if nether shadow is in your graveyard with three or more creatures above it you may put nether shadow onto the battlefield the plane part may not be obvious which plane part i'm referring to okay there's a number of things one is that as with many alpha cards it's not clear about which upkeep if any it's being it's referring to in its alpha yeah yeah it says um if it's in the graveyard with any combination of cards above that includes three creatures, it can be returned to play during During upkeep. upkeep. <laughs> which is obviously, we've talked about this for a number of cards already. So that's very reasonable interpretation that that's any upkeep. The other thing, which is even more impactful, is that the alpha version says for its normal casting cost. Very plain that <sighs> it's meant to be castable during your upkeep, not yes. that it should come directly into play. This card has incredibly incredibly overpowered oracle interpretation as compared to its alpha text at this point and haste is notwithstanding haste is actually a slight power upgrade uh, upgrade too but that's just because they didn't have the concept of haste and alpha but the simple truth is the alpha version should not be able to tap to use abilities the turn it comes into play it should only be able to attack but they've just kind of glossed over that fact since the card has yes great point great point like if you had an ability in play like uh let's call it um cryptolith right an effect an enchantment that gives all your creatures the ability to tap for mana the alpha version of this card should not be able to tap for mana the turn it comes into play because it should just be able to attack but they glazed over that with haste and just made most of these old creatures just have haste instead because it was easier so yeah steve i mean glossed over well yeah yes (laughs) that is what i mean so steve in, in in alpha league this card should not come back into play for free you should have to pay bb to return it to play right Sadly, I think you are correct. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm looking now, and it appears that the league authorities. <laughs> the note for the the note for this, Kevin, is note: the order of cards in your graveyard cannot be rearranged. Nice. That's all it says. That's that's the note. Yeah, that's. The I note. would describe that note as incomplete. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, I, I think you're right. Um, there's so many nuances here to discuss. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I can't discuss the nuances. Well, first, let's just caveat that in alpha text, we've seen a number of instances, and there are more, mm-hmm. of during upkeep, upkeep-based problems, whether it's Copper Tablet or Time Vault. The upkeep is, is, a, is a severe, significant recurring problem in terms yes. of in alpha, an alpha t- card templating. Um, but so, let's talk about this for a moment. Let's talk about this in terms of its lineage and descendants. Mm-hmm. This is the first self-reanimating creature that becomes a critical part of reanimator-style decks. 
So there are two reanimation effects in Alpha. There's Animate Dead. You know, obviously there's Resurrection and things like that. But there's Animate Dead and Nether Shadow. Those are the key the key components that become basically Dread Return is so the lineage goes through, you know, Dance of the Dead, you know, there are other versions of it, uh Necromancy, uh, you know, so on, the inst- the enchantments. Yeah. Um and then the self-reanimating creatures, the after Nether Shadow, you basically have to get to Ice Age with Ashen Ghoul, which mm-hmm. is if there's a creature above it, you can pay a black, it comes into play, it's three one with haste. Um but after Ashen Ghoul, basically the key card after that is Icarid. Which I yeah. think comes with torment around two thousand right. was it two thousand two, and and th- obviously there are lots of other anim- you know re- there's uh, necro savant <laughs> from yeah, visions. What's, what's the creature from um, hell's caretaker from legends? Yeah, there you go. You, yeah. Not a self reanimator, but yeah. No, yeah, and then there's obviously living um, all Hallows Eve from yeah. um, legends. Lots, of, but but the self reanimation. So so why don't you tell me the rest of the self reanimation? Because Krovik and Horror oh, is one of them. Well, Krovik and Horror doesn't come back to play. That comes back to your hand. That's a combination okay. of Ash and Ghoul and Squee, Squee is what Krovik and Horror is, really. But it's in, the I, same, I'm sorry. it's in the same neighborhood. It's in the same neighborhood, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, there's lots of variants of this thing that, well, you called out a couple of the key ones. There's also some red cards in the form of Phoenixes that when they die, they come back, right? Like the, yeah. the original Phoenix in the, in Legends and uh, things like the Shard Phoenix, which come back to hand a la Squee. But in terms of the black creatures, for example, that come back into play, you hit on the highlights. Obviously, Prized Amalgam is is kind of the yeah. one of the more recent ones after Icarid, and then the the Silver Smoke Ghoul, which we just recently reviewed, right? Yeah, that's continuing that lineage. And um, Narcomoeba is is noteworthy in that it has <laughs> a, a, a cool different design. condition, yeah. a, a very different condition, but still comes back nonetheless. There have been a few others over the years that were just never good enough. Um, Necrosavant is the one that I always go to. Uh, but anyway, the the fact of the matter is is that there was kind of a, a gulf between Ashen Ghoul to Icarid where there wasn't really one that was playable or good enough for any r- real reason. And it's it's ironic that we didn't even, you know, we our first dredge deck, which was ostensibly before a- any of the modern things, <laughs> yes. was making use of Nether Shadow. And, no, not Nether Shadow, Ashen Ghoul. I'm sorry, you're right. I meant to say Ashen Ghoul was making use of Ashen Ghoul and and the first buried live decks, which predate our dredge deck by a long ways, that were played like at U.S. Nationals, were using a combination of Nether Shadow and Ashen Ghoul too. And yes. so there's there's kind of a long lineage, but there was a, a big dry spell after Ashen Ghoul before there was anything really worthwhile printed. So uh, yeah, I'm so glad you mentioned the dredge deck. I was going to do that in 2006. I think it was 2006. I was the our whole team fielded dredge. Yeah, and I was the first person to top eight a major vintage tournament. I think we talked about it with Animate Dead. Yeah, with with it, and yes, I used my main win condition because <laughs> I had <laughs> I had was Dread Return printed yet? I think no, it, it was. was. Okay, my main win condition was Ashen Ghoul. I yeah. had Putrid Imp and Ashen Ghoul, and God, what what else was it? I could pull up the list, but I don't need to. We were doing but, it the hard way. It was it was not yeah. It was not streamlined and Icarid, powerful the way it, it is was, today. <laughs> Right, it was Icarid and and Ashen Ghoul were the two main win conditions, and I had Putrid Imps. But yeah. but but the the shell of basically four bazaars. I think I had crop rotation, which was restricted. Vamp Tutor, Demonic Tutor, Imperial Seal. Can I give you the with crit- breakthrough? No, it was it was Imperial Seal. It was Chrome Mox, Imperial. It was Imperial. Our our outlets were just um, Putrid Imp and Bazaar. Bazaar. Okay. And I think no, we had two careful studies. 
Uh, that was it. I thought there was a blue spell in there. Careful study. Yeah. There you go. We had a couple, maybe two to four careful studies. And yeah, the whole goal was just to basically get these uncounterable things going using, you know, Kogari Grave Troll and Stinkweed Imp to, to dredge your graveyard. Um, but Kevin, you know, Ashen Ghoul was pretty fast. I was very impressed by it, you know, because once you get yeah. like, once you dredge a bit, you can get two or three Ashen Ghouls. And like on turn, obviously, uh, I think we used Mox Diamond. I know we used Chrome Mox. Mox. Chrome Mox and Mox Jet and Lotus Petal were immensely powerful there because you could play them with the Bazaar. And then, you know, on turn three, basically have like three or four, three uh, Ashen Ghouls in play. Like turn two, you get the first Ashen Ghoul. Turn three, you have the like the rest and you're just swinging in, and they're just unstoppable because if your opponent kills them, they come right back. Mm-hmm. Um, but Kevin, I I wanted to point out so so Ashen Ghoul requires I think one creature on top of it, right? Yes. And you pay a black. Yes. This requires three creatures on top of it. Icarid requires no creatures on top of it, but you can't put it into play unless you exile a creature. So it's it's what it's done is it's moved in a kind of orthogonal direction to require a creature in the graveyard, which was the intent, the design intent. But it's abandoned the graveyard order conditionality, which is very challenging, right? Because I, I need people... to, yeah, I need to correct something, Steve. The Ashen Ghoul also requires three above of it. Oh, three? Okay. Yeah, it. You, you were you were thinking of Krovik and Horror again, which had yeah. to have one directly above it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's easy but, to forget when all these different conditions <laughs> go out throughout history. But the point, the point though, is that. They moved away from graveyard order because graveyard order is just so hard to maintain in paper magic perfectly. Yeah, oh, and wait, also unintuitive for people. Right, people screw up their graveyard all the time, and that's why like Phyrexian Furnace is such a, a pain in the butt. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so, uh, so I think the design intent is we want to make sure you have another creature in your graveyard. I don't think that like the design, the designers of Nether Shadow, re- maybe they did, maybe they, they wanted to be like a shadow in the graveyard. But I think the idea was that, look, we want your graveyard to have a bunch of creatures in it. And I think they just, I think perhaps they focused on order when really that they just wanted to make sure that there were three other creatures in your graveyard and they didn't quite think about that so simply. Yeah. In my opinion, maybe I'm overreading it, but I, I think that that's clear, you know, clearly what they're getting at. And just putting an order on it makes it clear that there needs to be three others. That said, <laughs> that said, Kevin, the, Gamma version of this card does not ha- does not say pay it for this casting cost. Interesting. What does it say? It's it just says can attack on turn cast if shadow is it was just called shadow not nether shadow if shadow Naturally. is in the discard pile with three creatures above it it can come untapped into play during upkeep. <laughs> so one, that one. what that tells me is that there was some it's kind of like lich right the way that if you just read the card lich it doesn't work. There was some cultural understanding passed from Gamma between Alpha into players' minds, <laughs> the way that Nether Shadow was meant to work. But the Alpha wording actually is not the same; doesn't match that, right? I'd be interested, Steve, if you have any experience with early rulings, because much like Lich, this is one of those situations where the the wording on the card does not support the way people played it. And I'm guessing there was some early rulings that clarified how basically how R&D wanted it to work. Yeah, the only early ruling is the, and we've talked about, is the Howl FAQ. Um, give me a second. I'll pull it up and see if it mentions Nether Shadow real quick. Sure. Oh, I just, what? Go ahead. It's Just while you're doing that, it's worth noting that the casting cost language was removed between Unlimited and Revised. 
the revised version of the card says it basically just says it can be returned to play during your upkeep the the casting part was removed thank you for telling us when that occurred um my my expectation is that the the early rulings were such that the R&D's intent was you know kind of overpowered the ruling or the wording I mean of the early printings especially me, since it was clearly changed for revised Kevin Nether Shadow is not mentioned in the original November 93 FAQ so I can't I can't answer for that I I don't know okay. it was, I don't know whether it was an early duelist but um we don't need to answer that right now Oh one other thing on Nether Shadow Kevin so a couple of years ago I had the opportunity to compete in a 95 old school event and this mm-hmm. was before their, the Conference of Professionals did it. I think it was in the Bay Area at Eudaimonia. And I built a really cool reanimator deck that I won the tournament with that had um, Ashen Ghoul, of course, Nether Shadow, Sinbad, um, to, which was amazing with Bizarre, four Bizarres, Sinbad, four Demonic Consultations. And Sinbad was really cool because if you hit a creature, it goes to the graveyard. If you hit a land, it goes to your hand. And if you hit a land, it was a little bit like Squee. Because you can use Sinbad to find a land, and then you can get more land in your hand to activate with Bizarre to try and find more Animate Dead and Dance of the Dead effects. So the deck was really good, um, and that's that's really cool. The only thing I, I complained about, I don't like, I wish was slightly better, is... So Icarid triggers regardless at the beginning. Icarid will trigger if you, even if you have no other black creatures at the beginning of your upkeep. But mm-hmm. Nether Shadow and Ashen Ghoul require you at the beginning of your upkeep to have three cards above it. I yeah. would suggest that's not consistent with the original alpha text. <laughs> in the in the um, specific case of Nether Shadow, because it just says during upkeep, not the beginning. You know, there's a lot of things wrong with it, and I would agree with your summation. The way the alpha wording is is designed, I agree with the part about during. It's also designed basically as casting the card, obviously, which is completely yeah, removed from yeah, the current incarnation. Right. But even if there's some space between a, a beginning of upkeep trigger and a during upkeep cast that allows for a during upkeep activated ability too, which that's also, a, I think, on the spectrum of defensible functions for this card is that you could just have a zero colon activated ability during your upkeep. That's well, not supported by the alpha wording, I don't think, but... <laughs> But so, we have a disagreement between wording and function already, so... I need to take and, back something I said, by the way, about Ashen Ghoul. It's not the case with Ashen Ghoul. Ashen Ghoul's Oracle Ashen Ghoul's text, an activated ability, right? It's an activated ability, which mean, and it says, activate this ability only during your upkeep. So right. what it means is that when you get to your upkeep, you can activate Bazaar of Baghdad, put three creatures on top of it, even if it's on the top of your graveyard, pay a black mana and put it into play. That's right. And I would argue, like you said, that... It's reasonable interpretation that Nether Shadow could work the same way. <clears throat> but that matters, because if you're playing in, let's say, an Alpha Beta Unlimited, let's say ABUN, just Alpha Beta Unlimited um, and Arabian Nights constructed, and you want to play a reanimator deck, right? You, it's very possible that to, you want to trigger the uh, Nether Shadow by, by activating Bizarre in your upkeep. Yeah, yeah. And you can't bring very the Nether Shadow. Yeah, so, so I think player groups who are playing Abu a- Abuen <laughs> how do you want how should i pronounce that Abuen <laughs> uh constructed will need to decide whether to use the oracle or to make an errata to make it slightly better totally agree and if um unfortunately i think any serious reexamination of the text of nether shadow just opens a can of worms with respect to the alpha wording 
Yeah, I think you're right. And I think for Alpha, it probably needs to be it needs to cost black, black black to put it into play because that's right. clearly that from a textual perspective, it's indefensible not to play it the other, that way. <laughs> so here's a here's a more difficult question even than that. Can you counter it? <laughs> so this this obviously came up when we discussed illusionary mask, right? right? Um, I would say so. It says, let's look at the text again. So the argument that illusionary mask is a spell that basically goes on the stack is that it the word it puts a lot of weight on the word summon. Mm-hmm. This doesn't say summon, so I would consider this a triggered ability. Yeah. It does. The phrase "returned to play" is actually a surprisingly modern concept. So, <laughs> well, it actually says, yeah, it says "return to play," but it may never have been in play in the first place. So <laughs> that's true. That's <laughs> obviously making a lot of assumptions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's funny. Let's talk briefly about the the gamma version again, which you alluded to. I want to read the gamma text because there's some noteworthy differences. Can attack on the turn cast. If shadow is in the discard pile with three creatures above it, it can come untapped into play, in parentheses, during upkeep. <laughs> it's very clear that this card references being cast, so you can attack the turn it's cast. But do you think that that distinction was meant to be different from when it comes back? Because it doesn't reference casting at all in the second part of the ability. Say that one more time. Do you think it can attack that gamma version? Do you think the gamma version can attack if you return it to play from your graveyard? I don't think gamma is deep enough the, to make a distinction tur- between the, because it wasn't cast, right? Right. Right. I don't think so. I, I don't think gamma is sophisticated enough to make that <laughs> distinction, but but that's okay. But that speaks to just the the gap in how the alpha wording is compared to current oracle text. I also love the fact that this is another kind of a, a multiple lines, as you alluded to a minute ago, with respect to, say, uh, goblins and merfolk. There's just so many black creatures, especially in this part of the alphabet, like you've got Shade, Shadow, Simulacrum, which is not a creature, Skeletons, Spectre, Vampire. Like, yes. there's just so, so many of these basic tropes. And then the word Nether Shadow coming you know, to the front of it. It's not like... It's not meaningful in the way that Llanowar is meaningful right. or Pearl Trident right. is meaningful. Even, it's or still even, evocative. even Mesa. Even Mesa. It's, sure, yeah. sure. It's it's a little closer to Mesa just because it tries to give it some context. But either way, I just really enjoy how much context just the word nether adds. It's amazing. It's almost yeah. more important than the shadow, in my opinion. Yeah, you, I, I would agree. I mean, you could have called this nether spirit, which was actually another... We should have That's mentioned right. that in the. What's <laughs> another one in the line? You're right. There's yeah. one that I played a bunch. Nether spirit, and that sure. was a, yeah. He, that was a, oh god. How fun was that? Obliterate Nether Spirit deck. <laughs> yes, very it much. Was so. Awesome. <laughs> 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 yeah. So I just I just love the fact that these basic tropey contexts or sorry these basic tropey creature types were slightly modified in almost every case to to make them more meaningful and more more flavorful. So Kevin. Do you have any experience playing with this card? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, in my early days, so after, after the first, okay, again, Nether Shadow in revised, I ended up with a handful of copies. Then when I finally got my first Hell's Caretaker, I was inspired to build a pseudo reanimator deck. And so, and but this was after like Ice Age had come out. I had Ashen Ghouls too. And so I put together the pieces and built a pseudo reanimator deck that was based on hell's caretaker but then i had all the components of our dredge deck basically like i had a set of nether shadows i had a set of ashen ghouls 
I didn't own bazaars. It was too obscure for me at the time, but I was still milling myself. I had Wheel of Fortune and things like that. So anyway, yeah, I definitely had a big group casual deck that was filled with Nether Shadows and Ashen Ghouls. And I just remember very fondly, especially when Buried Live was printed, I remember very fondly binning three Nether Shadows so that they could come oh. back consistently and or that I could sack them to reanimate other big things with my Hell's Caretaker. Yeah, I've, I've reanimated many an, another shadow in my youth, but uh, sadly, really not much since. It's a, it's a Hell's shame, too, because this is exactly the kind of card that I would really probably enjoy playing in like EDH. And I should oh. consider putting one in a deck or something. But uh, I, yeah. I love that combo, by the way. Hell's Caretaker and Nether Shadow. And also oh, Hell's yeah. Caretaker and, and uh, Tetravis is a cool combo. I had Tetravis in that deck, absolutely. <laughs> <yep>. Awesome. <laughs> That's awesome. How about you? Have you played Nether Shadow? Uh, just in the old school 95 format, where I thought it was very, okay. very good. I mean, it was... It just... You know, two or three Nether Shadows with an Ashen Ghoul, that's like a Juggernaut hitting your opponent. And it's uncounterable. Yeah. It was, you know, it was hard really good. You know, it was yeah. really good against, it was really good against the deck with the Abyss. Oh, nice. Yeah, totally. Bad against Moat, though. Bad against Moat, unfortunately, but yeah. very good against, yeah, very good against the Abyss version of the deck. That's why I played the deck in the last round and beat it, be- largely because I was able to eke out wins. So my, he would plow my Ashen Ghouls. And the Nether Shadows would just accumulate and then do uncounterable damage. <laughs> nice, nice. Yeah, it's 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 hard to beat a Swords to Plowshares, but uh, you can definitely do it with numbers. Can we talk about this art from the um, the legendary Chris Rush? It. This art is... So it, it suffers from a couple of the, the failings, I think, of Alpha, which is this creature is completely devoid of context. In fact, it's, it's actually a bit mysterious why this particular type of creature is in such a ostensibly fiery red orange setting right which i yeah i don't i'm not reading too much into it's it's very clearly there to partially to just evoke the translucency of the thing and it's the that exact translucency that i am just amazed at how chris rush was able to accomplish this it's so so convincing and so delicate the way this creature is is translucent that i just have always loved it yeah, I, I attribute it to some sort of abstract conception, like the Nether Shadows in in the Bardo. <laughs> I, I love it. it. It's almost like a, a Rorschach too, like the the shape of the thing. Aside from it having ostensibly a torso and arms and a head, but the the torso is well, it's just not like any torso I've ever seen, right? <laughs> right. It's more like an ink blot in its shapes, and the thing is convincingly menacing too which is is very well done i just love this art it's very much fun it's gorgeous and it's even more beautiful with those gorgeous signatures you have on your beta version (laughs) oh yeah it's very very happy to have that i i met chris rush a couple of times and got him to sign a couple of mine and the card has been reprinted alpha beta unlimited uh then up to fifth edition fifth edition is the only one that has a different art and it's still a great art by ditter lisi but uh Unfortunately, the card hasn't been printed again since 5th edition, even though I would argue that, like so many other cards that were printed into the ground, this one actually has some staying power, in my opinion. I'd love to see this card reprinted in yes. a, a standard set today, in fact, or yeah. maybe a commander deck. It's very flavorful and not too dissimilar from something like, say, a Bloodgast or an Archimiba, right? Or a Silver yep. Smoked Ghoul. Next up, we have Nettling Imp. Nettling Imp for 2B is a summon imp. It says tap to force a particular one of opponent's non-wall creatures to attack. If target creature cannot attack, it is destroyed at end of turn. 
This tap should be played during opponent's turn before the attack. May not be used on creatures summoned this turn. There's a lot of vagaries to that language, but um, in, in practice, I think it's actually not too bad. The idea here is simply being that you can control. This is just another in the long line of ways you can monkey with combat. We haven't read all of them, but we've read many of them, and this is just another one of that strong theme in Alpha. And I do remember, since this is an uncommon in Revised, I had a big stack of these, and I eventually did build the Nettling Imp Royal Assassin deck once I learned what Royal Assassin was. So, <laughs> it, this, card, this card is a very memorable card, right? I think part of it's the art, but part of it is oh, the yeah. effect. Love this art. Yeah, part of it is is the effect, though. So, Kevin, here's the question I... So it says may not be used on creatures summoned this turn. Otherwise, obviously, it would be just used to like royal assassin cards. <laughs> it would be in, incredibly inverse, good, yes. In in the inverse, um, what are the best uses you've seen of this? I mean, obviously, you compare it with the royal assassin to to force your opponent to attack to kill to knock it off. Yeah, and then the inverse relation. I mean, it was it was a key part of the royal assassin icy manipulator deck, right? Because yeah, because icy combos with this almost as well as it combos with royal assassin, right? Good point. You just you just tap their creature and then say that creature attacks, and it, if it doesn't, it's destroyed, right? So this the the nettling imp icy combo was also almost as good as the royal assassin icy combo in practice. And the other thing was too is that um, depending on the nature of other things in your deck, this is just a useful disruptive thing, even if you didn't have anything else going on. If you cast a Sengir and you had this in play, well, there's obviously countless other creatures in just the alpha context that you'd love to attack into your Sanger. <laughs> and so yeah. I, I genuinely think this card is a subtly powerful card in just the alpha context in the sense of not having fully tuned, fully powered decks, right? If you're just playing with alpha cards in kind of a, a casual way, this card's actually pretty powerful. I have a rules question for you. Suppose that mm-hmm. an opponent wants to activate a jade statue in their turn, but not to attack, but because, say, they want to avoid power sink or something like uh, power surge, avoid damage from power surge or something sure. like that. If they, you have to use this ability. It says, it says, and the Oracle, activate this only during an opponent's turn before attackers are declared. So is it possible that you could activate jade statue in the declare attacker step and your opponent wouldn't have a window to activate this, the nettling imp on the jade statue? I don't think that's the case, but I'm just wondering. Um, no, it's it's you'd have to in order to attack with a jade statue, you'd have to activate it before at the beginning of combat. Before the declare attacker step. Yeah, but here's the thing: if you don't want to attack with it, you can activate the jade statue any point after declare attackers. Ah. Because the modern oracle wording of jade statue says activate this ability only during combat. There you which go. is a multi-step affair, and you can do it after the window of declaring attacks is awesome. there if you wanted to do exactly that. That's the old berserk after defense is chosen yeah, trick. Yeah, same <laughs> with uh, Mazavith, the old Mazavith trick, where I've already dealt my damage, but I can still be untapped. Nice. And so, but if you're asking about in the alpha context, it gets a little muddier, though, because alpha does not have this much rigor around the combat steps, which we've already discussed in, with respect to other cards. So I'm not quite sure of the answer in just the alpha context. I think, jeez. Ah, so if you go back to Jade Statue, for example, the alpha one, for reminder, says can be a creature only during an attack or defense, <laughs> which is a, a, a lowly vague concept, right? I think a generous wording of Jade Statue is that you could activate it in the later parts of combat, even in the alpha sense, because alpha 
like it or not, definitely does um, lay out stages to combat, right? So I think it's reasonable to say that you could do the same trick that you can with the modern rules and I'll, after it activate it later in combat after you've uh, attacked. It's tricky, though. I'd like to see a, a ruling. I'm sure no, none exists. This is way too narrow a situation. But I'd like to see some rulings about it to try and justify that. Appreciate your, your thoughts. I also By like the, way, the Quinn, fact that the alpha wording here uses the phrase a particular one of your opponent's <laughs> non-wall creatures. <laughs> not target, you know, not that you choose. You just It's a particular one. <laughs> I, think, I think magic would be a much more lofty affair if we replaced every example of target with a particular one. <laughs> God. <laughs> uh, yeah, lightning bolt does three damage to a particular one of. <laughs> Wild. Um, this art I have to go back to because much like say magical hack and library of Lang, this is one of those arts that is just, <laughs> just completely full of context, you know, yes. debatably way too much context. Yeah. It is, it's legitimately difficult to know where the, the edges of this imp end and the objects that is sitting near begin, especially with its tail, which apps wraps in and around the book that it's sitting on. And also just because it's humorous to say so, I'm a little unclear as to how big this imp is. That book could be three and a half feet wide for all I know. <laughs> and it's what, what, the, what the other objects in this, in this scene don't necessarily scream size reference to me. Like there's ostensibly a jar that I'm guessing is for ink that's missing its quill in the foreground. Maybe that's an, an ink jar, which would make this a, a reasonably sized book and a reasonably sized ink jar, but I'm not convinced so my guess is the idea was that the imp, this imp is small, right? This imp is maybe a foot tall sitting in its place here, but I'm not convinced of that. Who, who really knows? I, I had, It's a one-one. One. The idea is it's small. So Quentin Hoover, this gorgeous purple in this. I love the, I love the art. I love the rendering. love the coloring. I agree mm-hmm. it's probably a little bit overly rendered. No harm, <laughs> no foul, because in, that's not a, a recurring flaw in alpha that it is in, ma- in modern magic, where you don't have the yeah. simplistic design. Um. But I do get irritated that this card has wings and doesn't have flying. You know, they, mm. they appear to be functional wings, not like, you know, Tyrannosaurus Rex hands. You know, it's like. <laughs> right. Yes, <laughs> um, I would agree. Yeah. It's also worth noting that from a. Like Elvis Spirit lineage, Guide. The Elvis Spirit Guide problem, right? Yeah, yeah. The Whippoorwill problem. Um, like many creatures, this card was not printed after revised, which is a little bit strange in my, um, in my eyes just because. A functionally very similar version was added to Ice Age in the form of Norit, which I, I, I'm not going to belabor the differences, but it's a very similar card, which I'm guessing, why did they make up Norit when they could have just reprinted Nettling Imp like they did with so many other cards in Ice Age? It's oh, an interesting question for someone yeah. else in the design process. But also of note is this is one of a short list of cards which you've alluded to before, which was in summer, but then didn't make it into fourth edition. So it's probably related to the design of Norit in, in practice that they were planning this card in summer and then maybe the act of designing Ice Age came up with Norit and they decided they didn't want to keep Nettling Imp. So for one reason or another, at any rate, uh, yeah, noteworthy history that this is one ABU revised and summer, but that's the last printing. Cool card lost. Another cool card lost to the yeah. sands of time. All right, let's move on. Let's move on then and talk about one Nevenril's disc. It's actually pretty simple. Four mana, 
generic mono artifact, one colon destroys all creatures, enchantments, and artifacts in play. Disc begins tapped, but could be untapped as usual. Disc destroys itself when used. So the modern oracle wording of the disc is uh, Neverless Disc enters battlefield tapped, and it says one colon, I'm sorry, one tap colon, destroy all artifact creatures and enchantments. So in practice, the alpha wording is actually pretty darn close to the current function. The it basic has a reminder, difference is the sequence yeah, and in play, yeah. Yeah, exactly. It has a reminder about the fact that it destroys itself, but I think that is really just reminder at this point because the original statement of destroys all creatures enchantments and artifacts in play definitely includes the disc in its scope yeah so it's, it's really just a little bit of strategic advice i guess <laughs> this isn't chaos orb it doesn't sacrifice itself to activate right. you know it's not a sacrifice right. it's it's destroys everything in play including itself i guess that's kind of what chaos orb actually does it destroys itself but but it's not a sacrifice that's right and it's noteworthy from the standpoint of that they're even within alpha as owing to all of the different, um, you know, individual functional pieces of effects in alpha that you have the capability of the disc living through its own activation. I can't think of how many different ways there are to do it, but one that immediately comes to mind is that you could animate artifact this and then regenerate it when you activate mm. it. Now the act of doing so would destroy the animate artifact. So you, you'd have to repeat that process with a different copy of animate artifact or something like that. But the fact remains is that it's possible to activate a disc and get it to live through its own effect, even in the alpha context alone, which is pretty cool. This is one of the coolest cards, I think, in the entire set. So fundamentally, having a board wiper that sweeps just about everything, so it doesn't touch enchantment, it does, sorry, it doesn't touch lands, having having something that just board wipes, that sets the slate clean, is, I think, great for magic. And having it come into play tapped is, I think, especially canny and just the just the right amount of trade-off that you want because it gives everyone notice hey look you know that for the next turn unless we can get rid of this thing everything is at risk right yeah it also i just having it in there is just a wonderful solution to like ridiculously complex board states and it also gives colors like black removal that otherwise wouldn't have it right i mean we saw that with um, necro decks, needing to remove their own necro at times. Yep, a very subtle and uh, powerful implementation of this card. Right. My favorite by far is the Sedge Troll decks with <laughs> Disc. <Nice. laughs> Those nice. are just so funny. Yeah, it really bakes, it really reinforces the the emergent design elements that Richard Garfield is on record uh, intending very strongly in, in Alpha. And it plays directly with regeneration, of course, but just all the other little quirky things that you can do, like the later involvement uh, involvement with Necro. And you could envision some scenarios in the alpha context where you might have a permanent that you might want to get rid of too that was your own originally, like, say, Copper Tablet, for example. The All, all the pieces are there to have uh, offensive and defensive and clever uses of the disc. Kevin, we talked about you surviving and winning through multiple discs and landstill. Oh, jeez. Yeah, the uh, for those who aren't following the context, the SCG Double Power Nine event that I that I won with stacks in the finals, I defeated a Landstill deck that had that had three main deck discs, and in game one of our finals match, my opponent resolved and activated all three of his <laughs> discs, and I still managed to win that game with a with a Smokestack deck. It was incredible. 
I feel very proud of that particular accomplishment. Yeah, I mean, I remember growing up as a as a casual and then later on in some tournament context having a lot of respect for the disc like early on when me and my buddies were just learning how to play we didn't put disc in any decks because it was too symmetrical right i didn't want to blow up my sarah angels and stuff but as time went on a couple of my friends found a good use for it maybe some clever interactions with regeneration maybe they just thought you know they're being a little uh, i don't know sadistic but either way (laughs) it started to work its way into my game experience and i grew a healthy respect for it and then it kind of fell off because in the, the intervening periods when I was getting exposed to competitive play, it just wasn't a good enough card for things like Extended or you know, the days of Type 2 when it, well, was on or off even playable in a Type 2 format. So this day and age, it's been a long time since I've seen a disc. Um, I think I saw it in an EDH game online that I wasn't playing in <laughs> a couple months back once. So it's a pretty novel card by today's standards. But part of that reason is that it was the progenitor for some other variants that have become much better. Uh, the best one, especially from an EDH context, is uh, Oblivion Stone, which is similar to this effect. blows up a lot of different permanent types, but it also has the caveat of being able to save your own permanents given sufficient time and mana. And in practice, it's just a much po- more powerful card for EDH context. Steve, what's the what's the most modern contemporary equivalent to this in Vintage? a thing that blows up multiple permanent types. I guess it would have to be um, Ratchet Bomb slash Powder Keg. Ex- Engineer Explosives. <laughs> Engineer Explosives, yep. So that, that trifecta of very similar cards, yeah. And it's, we're only a couple of years removed from from Keg slash Ratchet Bomb being very f- formative in the Vintage Champs, right? In the Montolio versus Rich Shea match, the, there was a lot of action with their sideboarded Kegs and Bombs. And I've personally paid a fair number of uh, engineered explosives in various multicolor control decks too. And before EE and Keg and Bomb, the the one that didn't make a big splash in vintage but was very popular, especially the moment it was printed, was Pernicious Deed. Pernicious Deed's definitely. Oh my god! I forgot uh, entirely about that card. Yeah, multi-format all-star based on the Nev's disc model. And there's been plenty of other variations over the years. I don't think we need to list them all out. It's worth noting that this is a number, another one of the many cards in the early days of Magic that were named after people. In this case, not a Magic designer, but the sci-fi author, Larry Niven. And Niven Rolls is simply a, an anagram of Larry Niven, famously the author of Ringworld and other things in the 70s. Um, I'm pretty sure this was a Richard Garfield allusion, specifically to Larry Niven, but I'm, I don't actually know that. I've just always kind of attributed it to Garfield. Yeah, that's my assumption. Boy, this art is the closest we get to Hellraiser. <laughs> that's pretty funny. Uh, yeah, it's actually a pretty gruesome art. Uh, it's very reminiscent of the Sarlacc pit, right? Mm-hmm. Even though um, it's not a pit at all. It's obviously a, a disc. The I, I wanted to ask you, with respect specifically to the art, do you view this as a... This is a piece of jewelry of sorts, like a pendant, much like a mox, that has kind of an otherworldly power to consume things larger than itself, like Mary Poppins' bag. Is that how you read this? Absolutely. I, I view it as the Hellraiser box, right? Something yeah. that may look innocuous until you open it up. Yeah, I agree completely. Uh, rendered by the the famous Mark Tadine. Yeah. And this card was reprinted in the early days, like um, it was another one of those things that was, I think, kind of a staple of the core sets, right? Alphabet Unlimited up through fifth edition and then it just completely disappeared 
the only other printing since fifth edition um in in the paper like a booster product was eternal masters there the after the fifth edition was well fifth edition was the last paper use of the original art as well then starting digitally and in some some supplementary products like commander products we got the new modern printing which is a much more explosive looking still handheld disc yeah so it hasn't been introduced into a magic format since fifth edition steve this card uh playable in old school it's unbelievably good it the uh sedge troll deck is one of the best decks in the grixis sedge troll deck is one of the best decks in in 94 old school 94 and um in alpha league it's a bit more dicey because you can only play three of them and they're immensely expensive but there are lots of great regenerators because you have Sedge Troll, Upton Troll, and there are others, I think, besides. I can't remember. Yeah. Well, that's pretty cool. I can honestly say the last time I played a Nev's disc in any kind of competitive context was in a very early Type 1.5 tournament. It would have been, I guess, the summer of 95 or 96. I don't remember which summer it was. I played in a, in a Northern Ohio Type 1.5 tournament with a what you would call Jeskai, but I didn't know that word then. Uh, agro control deck. It was like a, it was like a Serendib lightning bolt kind of deck that had very low, very few creatures, and I had discs to control the board. So it's just kind of efficient threats, and I was disking people. It's actually a pretty good uh, deck design that I came up basically on my own because I was not <laughs> using the internet for magic at that year. Pretty fun. That's my fondest memory of Nez Disc is that deck. What was the card like in Gamma? Was the card in Gamma? Let's see. My guess is if it was, it would just be called Disc or something like that. But maybe it wasn't even in there. Let's see. Oh, sure it is. It's called Magic Disc. Ah. Yep. Four mana, one to activate. Destroys all creatures, enchantments, and artifacts in play, including itself. Cannot be used at the turn cast. Yep. Pretty, pretty loyal uh, interpretation of the Gamma wording for Alpha. Interestingly, it says it cannot be used the turn cast. That's been replaced with just coming into play tapped. But if you were to, uh, it's possible to implement that in a different way by modern standards. Anything else on Nev's disc? Nope. I lo- it's lovely. I mean, just it's an incredibly, it's a card that I think leaves a strong imprint. Once you see it, you don't readily yeah. forget. Yeah, that's true. It, it, it evokes a lot in terms of its power and its tactical and strategic implications, I think. I agree with you there. Next up, we have the iconic Nightmare. Except no substitutes. The <laughs> Nightmare is is awesome for so many reasons. 5B for Summon Nightmare. It's flying. Nightmare's power and toughness are both equal to the number of swamps its controller has in play. Pretty simple. The alpha wording's spot on. Not too much ambiguity or anything. And uh, obviously, you can't talk about the Nightmare without talking about this just incredible Melissa Benson art that is so evocative. So beautiful. Uh, Steve, we've already alluded to Nightmare in a number of ways already in that it is one of the few threats that can that can outsize even the largest creatures yeah. in Alpha, right? It can yeah. grow larger than Lord of the Pit and larger than Force of Nature. I was, And I, for that reason, it's very powerful. I was surprised. I think we asked at some point, how many cards in Alpha either have Star Star as their power and toughness or can grow over time? Yeah. And there's a large number. I mean, from Fungusaur to Nightmare... You know, Gaia's Liege. I mean, just there's there's a surprisingly large number. And yes, Nightmare, it can become the largest in the format yeah. in the set. I, I, and that's, so I'm not really familiar with the fantasy background to this card. It's 
just looks like a flaming horse flying in the sky to me. Is that exactly <laughs> what it is, or is there some other story behind it? Well, I'm I'm not an old D and D player well enough to know exactly all the lineage of nightmare, but it is a I know it's a D and D trope. I mean, I know it's a D and D creature. There is, if you look in any of the D and D guides, like I mean, nightmare is a thing, a, 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 an enemy that you could face. Mm. I don't know if it has much more, let's call it flavor or story behind it, but. Yeah, I mean, this is definitely a D&D creature, top-down design. It's interesting, you and I talked earlier about this exact point, but while I made the point earlier that I think Alpha does, on the whole, a very good job of evoking color pie with the quantity of designated color symbols, I'm very surprised that Nightmare only requires a single black. It would very easily yes. be a three BBB creature, yes. or even more, uh, by today's design standards, for example. Not that I'm complaining. I just think it's funny that you don't get a very good deal if you play this in a two-color deck. <laughs> as soon as you pepper in two mountains with four swamps, you're overpaying for this thing by a long shot. Nightmare was printed a lot in core sets in the early days. Like uh, ABU 4th th- and 5th and 6th, 7th, 8th, 9th, 10th, M10, and then skipped a few and M14. I mean, this this is one of those cards that they really just committed to this is a staple of core sets and it was there omnipresent for years and years and years and i i'm not convinced that by today's standards this should even be a rare like i think if you were to print this again that you could make a case that this is uncommon power level and i wouldn't be surprised if a future printing had it at the uncommon level well we've seen a number of rares slip down Mm -hmm. but uh, but i felt for different reasons very similarly about a number of other cards we've reviewed like meeks oh yeah Meekstone, I felt, you know, could easily be an uncommon. Um, Natural Selection, Nether Shadow, among others. Yeah. Well, we've talked about it before, and I won't belabor the point. There are many cards in Alpha that were under, that were under, sorry, that were overpowered and had to be excised from their format, like the the Moxes, Black Lotus, all those. There are several cards that were completely underpowered and had to be excised for that reason, and many of them lived longer than they should have. Like the, in my opinion, the, the magical hacks and the, the, the laces right. and things like that. Right. The This one, I think, is a sweet spot. This is one of, a, a not a tiny list, but a short list of alpha cards that really hit the nail on the head right off the bat. Not by today's standards in terms of power necessarily, but this card was legitimately good enough to be in magic and a staple part of black for years and years. And I wouldn't complain if it was reprinted, although I do think it's underpowered for a rare by today's standards. But that's not saying much. They're power creeping the game so much that most creatures from 20 years ago are not appropriate for their current rarities or the original rarities. Now, let's talk briefly about the art. The Melissa Benson original is just just incredible. So beautiful. So much detail. Such an incredible depiction of a fiery horse. It's just there's not much more you can say. It's just beautiful. I'm not as enthralled with this art as you are, but I'm not going to sit oh, here I just and love critique it. it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I've seen better flames. Don't get me wrong, but I just think, I just think it's incredible. That said, there are two other arts for Nightmare, and I also think those other arts are incredible as well. Carl Krichkow's, which was introduced in seventh, all the way through M10, and then Vance Kovacs's that was introduced in M14, and for a couple of other supplementary and digital printings as well. That one's awesome, too, and, and those two are much more dark and grim, whereas Melissa's is just more kind of like awe-inspiring. 
it is a little strange that the there, there's so much um, presence or sorry emphasis on flames, but that's a throwback to the D and D creature. The D and D creature is a, a flaming creature first and foremost, and so that's just really a straight up allusion, I think, to the original the source material. The mechanically in magic sense, there's no connection between your power and toughness being swamps and having a flaming creature, right? You could, you could uh, be understood to view this creature as more of a red one based on its depiction, but everything else about it is pretty str- strongly in black. The fact that it flies on the, on the size of, uh, you know, a six mana or bigger creature, a large creature for black is still, I think today in black's wheelhouse to have large, scary flyers. And so I think just the design of this thing flames, notwithstanding is still pretty spot on by today's standards. Steve, do you have any memory of playing Nightmare? Never, never played it ever. Faced it in oh. Alpha League, but oh, that's a shame. I had one as a kid. I only had one, unfortunately, and I loved casting it. It was great, but it, uh, I never have an Alpha or Beta one, which I still kind of covet. Oh, and let's talk about the Gamma context really quick, because I'm guessing this one is just called Nightmare in Gamma. I got to double check that though. Hold on. Yep, sure enough, Nightmare. Six mana, flies, power and toughness equal to the swamps. Yep, unchanged from Gamma. Pretty good design. So next up is one that we've definitely alluded to a number of times before in the context of color changing and other and hosers and things. This is the Northern Paladin. 2WW Summon Paladin. It says WWN tap colon destroys a black card in play. Cannot be used to cancel a black spell as it's being cast. And it's a 3-3. So this is just another in a long line of many different types of hosers in the set. It's not part of a pair. Like there are so many pairs in hosers, right? But there's no equivalent in alpha to uh, a creature that taps to destroy. Like there's no uh, black creature that taps to destroy a white permanent, for example. So this is not part of a, a literal pairing. Steve, this one, uh, I, this is one that I, I think in my childhood actually did do a slight slash hack on, <laughs> to, you know, to change because I wanted to try it once, and it was seemed like the most obvious one that was flexible without being rude, right, to the point of. Um, conversion or karma or or you know gloom so i've definitely cast this and, and hacked it to another color but um other than that i have really no association with this card except for the strangely photo real art <laughs> <laughs> so the art i'm willing to bet is is a reference to the arcade game dragon's lair oh yeah you know what that now that you say that that's really strong yeah what's the lead character's name in dragon's lair I don't. I remember the name. <laughs> I remember pumping... Dirk the Daring. Yeah. <laughs> Dirk the Daring, that's what it was. I, re- I remember pumping quarters into that and not get- getting very far as a kid. <laughs> yeah, you're not alone. <laughs> it's like that light would come if you didn't press the button, you would be... <laughs> I know. So so for anyone who doesn't know what Dragon's Lair is, I'm not going to give you a treatise. The point is, is Dragon's Lair was a, a breakthrough video game in the, in the way that it was animated, because it was animated like a real cartoon... Because it was, it was like, Don, it's like um, it was Don Bluth was one of the producers yeah. who who made like Land Before Time and so on. Yeah. It was a breakthrough video game because it really looked like a cartoon. That's because the the segments were all like pre recorded. It was kind of like um, Mortal Kombat, the way Mortal Kombat used live action actors <laughs> in video and little pre recorded segments. Well, Dragon Lair was a, a ostensibly an adventure story, but by today's standards, it was entirely quick time events. Yeah. All you did in the yeah. game was just react to on-screen prompts, and you had a millisecond to do a thing to yeah. save your life. 
And it was inexplicable, incredibly difficult, frustrating, and designed to just suck quarters out of kids. <laughs> and so it was a, it was a, in a sense, it was a beautiful game because it looked great for its time, and it was a breakthrough in terms of design and aesthetic. At this, and it was simultaneously incredibly frustrating and just agonizing. And only the most dedicated and or wealthy people <laughs> ever actually beat it. <laughs> well, one of the features of the game is that the main character, and in fact that the dinosaurs always kind of had like a grimace and a snarl on their face. Like it was always, <laughs> yeah. even the dragon. So this is clearly an homage to that, in my opinion. I, I love that. That's that's a very, very reasonable read, I think. Although the the grimace is entirely in the eyes in this card, so it's not quite <laughs> right. so. Um, but the other thing that's, the fo- I love this, I love this art from Douglas Shuler. This is probably my favorite Douglas Shuler's art. And I own, I've owned an Alpha and a Beta Sarah Angel since, you know, I was a kid, uh-huh. uh, since basically, since 1994. But Kevin, there's so much I love about this. First of all, I love the ethereal golden haze in the background. I love the strange three pine trees. I love the detail on the armor. The facial expression is hilarious. It's both incredibly photorealistic and also incredibly cartoony in terms of the facial expression. Yeah. But the other thing that's, it's, interesting about this card is so we have cards that have you know unholy strength with the pentagram isn't is this our first explicitly christian reference in alpha or one of quite a few it was blessing was it yeah blessing and then crusade right well so i mean crusade blessing does well blessing has like an eastern orthodox church but it doesn't have a cross on the top of it it looks like a papal figure right like a a Greek Orthodox church and some sort of like figure, but crusade, sorry, crusade has, um, a, a I mean, cross crusade on it. Yeah. has crucifix on the, yeah, on the soldiers. So. Right. Cross on the soldiers. But this, yeah. So this is, but it's still, not this the is on, one. this is on the short list. Yeah. Right. Yeah. This continues the, the flavorful comparison of white being basically a Christian adjacent, <laughs> <laughs> uh, color and and equating black in generally with evil, right? And the 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 common trope of of religious purists and devotees yeah. uh, banishing Crusading. evil, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so 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 Kevin, also this is not tiny. I mean, four for three three is you know we've already covered this. This is uh, what is it? War mammoth territory, right? Yeah, he'll giant. giant territory. Sorry, in, in, I went the to the more obscure of, reference first. <laughs> <laughs> the um, well, actually, I don't mind that reference just because this exists on a spectrum and one that's that's pretty unique in the alpha context because we've alluded to it before about the distinction between big creatures or creatures that are there for attacking and blocking and right. utility creatures. Yes, right. And this one blurs the lines, right? Yeah. This has attacking and blocking stats with utility, and yeah. in the alpha context, especially, that's unusual. And you know, in the modern era, creatures do more and more. They're more and more complicated. But for a long time, this this creature inhabits a unique kind of space in yeah. that spectrum. It's like pirate ship too, right? Like, what if <laughs> yeah. what if Juggernaut tapped to ping an opponent? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. No, but this is this is a not this is a nothing like this is a this is not a low rent activated ability. This is like a real <laughs> activated ability, right? This is not yeah. silliness. This is powerful. As a sideboard effect, <laughs> this is like yeah. enormously powerful against the black decks. And in addition to that, due to the rate that you get on the creature's body, you can 
you could be understood and happy to include this in your average deck. And if you're playing against not black, you can just beat down with it, right? Yep. I mean, you've only slightly overpaid in terms of having two designated for a vanilla 3-3, but only slightly, very slightly. And so I was never in the business of just having extra value against black, for example, in my decks. But in the early days of Magic, this would have been a fine main deckable card in a lot of yeah, medium power decks. Especially if you have Crusades or other ways to boost it. It's fine. Absolutely fine. I think as a one-of, you could easily throw it in, even without sideboards. Perfectly reasonable. That said, did you ever do that? Did you ever play this card? Uh, You know what? I had... I th- I I had veteran bodyguard in my deck in a very in 1994 for a nanosecond. Nice. I think I I don't think I ever ended up using this even in a sideboard. I definitely contemplated it. Definitely, I know that. But I because I had it in like a place in my collection where I would you know it was accessible, but I never actually ended up running it. Yeah, before I really honed my deck and got all the legends cards, I was playing blue white and running like Sarah you know Sarah's Mahamodi's. And I said before, Rubinia Soulsinger when I had green and, and birds and Felwar stones. Um, but I, I think the, the most I ever went into white was like wall of swords, like one wall of swords, one veteran bodyguard for defense. And it was everything else was up, up top. Sarah's and Mahamodi's. Yeah. Kevin, the more I'm looking at this card, the, the, the more amazed I am that the expression is so cartoony and yet the rendering <laughs> is so realistic. Like, that is an impressive <laughs> achievement, honestly. It really is. It really is. It's incredible. <laughs> it's, it's, it's really convincing. It's really alarmingly convincing art, yeah. honestly. <laughs> <laughs> this guy, is, you just know this guy's going to open his mouth and make some smart, ac- smart Alice, Alice remark. <laughs> That's true. That's very true. What a cool card. This, and, and also, I love the was... fact that they call it a Northern Paladin. Yeah. Obviously, a D&D, well, you know... Uh, oh yeah class definitely a D class but yeah. you don't see and, a lot of paladins in magic well there have been a few over the years since then but but oh, it's, no, it's noteworthy in distinction the man with between... the encyclopedic magic <laughs> knowledge <laughs> well but your point is well made in contrast to more basic tropes knights. like warrior knights. soldier knights yeah. yeah wizards that kind of thing you're right there's comparatively few paladins the um <laughs> it's interesting to note that the gamma version has the same cost, and it says tap to remove black enchantment or creature for WW. So the, the in, in practice, that's not a meaningful distinction in the alpha context, right? But as time goes on over the, the, the span of magic and you get uh, p- permanents that could be black that are not enchantments or creatures, the, uh, the alpha <laughs> implementation becomes more powerful, you know? Yeah. Like... Um, because it says black card in play which was updated to be black permanent now with by today's standards it could destroy a black artifact or a black planeswalker right right which the gamma version could not kevin this is funny i just searched gatherer and i shouldn't be using gatherer i know for paladin and i found uh-huh. southern paladin a card i've never seen before at least i have no oh, recollection yeah, of I was seeing point it. that out this is hilarious art <laughs> this guy is like <laughs> got it it's it's almost the inverse in every way. He's got like a, a smirky, smarmy smile. <laughs> you know, instead of yeah. like the subtle gr- grimace <laughs> scowl, it's like <laughs> he's got tropical in the background instead of the deciduous trees. It's like a bright white and blue background instead of the golden bl- dark haze. It's incredible. Yeah. 
<laughs> the expression so, is so funny. <laughs> so for the benefit of our audience, it wasn't until uh, Weatherlight, which is you know part of the Mirage block, where we got kind of the second one in this cycle. And as Steve is enjoying, the, the Southern Paladin is a Jamuran scent, right? A tropical version of this. But it's the same composition in the art. And, and this one is, uh, you know, he's making a, a, a little more of a playful smirk. And uh, God, this is these interestingly. Are great. Yeah, this is interestingly also done by Douglas Schuler, right? Oh, my but God. In a, in a very different style, a very more Mirage Block style. And. Um, and this one taps to destroy a red permanent. This is otherwise the same card, but it destroys a red permanent. You know what? In both cases, but especially the Northern Paladin, in my mind's eye, the, his face is more scowling and more smirky. But then when I look at the art, it's more subtle. And I, I think there's yeah. some sort of brilliant... You know, it's like the Mona Lisa, right? Like, you, Part <laughs> of what makes it so powerful is that you can't quite tell what her expression is, right? Is it a smile? Is it a frown? And that enigmatic nature is part of what makes it so alluring. I just think that the, the this is just such, I said it twice already, but what a brilliant yeah. rendering of cartoony and fo- and paint, you know, photorealistic painting with, you know, just a, I mean, the facial expression just suggests so much. It's, it's hilarious and brilliant. It's great. Agreed. Totally agree. Let's talk about the lineage a little bit more since you brought it up. I was definitely going to go to Southern Paladin. Northern Paladin was reprinted uh, ABU 4th, well, ABU revised, excuse me, summer and 4th. Then they skipped a couple sets and it was reprinted in 7th edition. And that's the last printing. The 7th edition printing is noteworthy because it was also printed alongside Southern Paladin in 7th edition. So the two of them were printed as a dyad. a pair, yeah. Yeah, well then one set later... We got Eastern and Western Paladin. Ooh. And what are Eastern and Western Paladin? Were they the black equivalents of the cycle that were introduced in Saga? So it's the same it's the same pairing that were both printed in Saga. They're both black and they destroy white and or green um permanents with respect or respectfully. Interestingly though, they powered them down because the black ones only destroy creatures. The 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 northern and the eastern destroy permanents. The eastern sorry. The northern and the southern destroy permanents of their respective colors, black and red. The eastern and western, which are black creatures, only destroy creatures of white or green. Mm. So, and that makes sense because, you know, white has a broader scope in terms of targeted destruction than black ever will. And so they made them flavorful homages, but powered them, I think, properly to be in the color of black. So they just put these, these were originally in Saga though, right? The original Eastern and Western were in Saga, yes. And then they brought both them at all the together time. in 8th. Interesting. Uh, then they they printed the two of them again in 8th, yeah. So the, the white ones were printed in 7th. The black ones are printed in 8th. But the black ones are also in 7th. Oh, are they? Oh, I'm sorry. You're right. I missed that. You're right. They, they brought all four paladins together in 7th in seventh <laughs> edition. And then the black ones persisted in 8th edition. Thank you for clarifying. That's weird yeah, that the 7th are... edition art is different. And then in 8th, they reprinted with the original Urza Saga art. <laughs> yes, that is interesting. But seventh edition had a lot of unique art for cards. It was it was part of its part of its shtick was that it <laughs> had brand new art for lots of things. Well, that's cool. A fun card and fun card to play with. Now I've got to I've got to pick me up one of these. Yeah, I'm excited to talk about our next card, Kevin. All right, let's move on and cover Absinus Golem. So this is another one of those cards that uh, kind of goes under underappreciated in the alpha context because of the presence of, su- of such powerful and efficient cards in the same genre. 
Obsidian's Golem is a six mana artifact creature, text box is only flavor, and it is a four six. A vanilla four six artifact creature, which we've already alluded to, and it's easy to kind of look over it when you've got such heavy hitters in Alpha as Juggernaut and Jade Statue. But this is <laughs> yeah. just another one that was um designed, I think, to be just fill you know, a, a slot filler for any deck <laughs> that wanted it. Yeah. And the the power and toughness kind of tells that story because four six is i think a purposeful in the uh, the alpha context power and toughness for reasons we've already alluded to uh, with like uh the trifecta of powerful um well it's not just a trifecta really but the the big three uncommon flyers sarah singer and air elemental this can attack through without risk of dying as well as all the other like common and common mid-sized creatures your elementals earth water fire air those those all those elementals those this this can attack through all of those or at least into yep. and uh, expect to live so the, the six toughness and the four power is a very purposeful i think power and toughness well you uh, to put this one in the context of the whole set well well put well you already pointed this out but this card has one of the best combinations total power and toughness relative to casting cost in the set right yeah. six to ten is essentially a very good deal <laughs> right very good deal yeah you have to go to rares to get any better than that right so I've had a little bit of fun playing with this card, Kevin. My non-alpha league, just alpha 40 channel fireball deck has a bunch of four juggernauts and four J statues. And just for fun, I tried to decide to test one of these in there because it's a little nice. bit frustrating to get your, your juggernauts killed so quickly by lightning bolts and basically anything. So I wanted to put yeah. this in there and you know the the dam the the life that it costs to cast it is quite a lot. <laughs> you know it's like <laughs> I, for some reason it just feels a little bit more. You can jump a jade statue and a juggernaut for nine life, but this and a juggernaut takes you to nine. This and a jade statue takes you to ten. It doesn't quite feel as beefy yeah. in that regard. Um, but it does if it lands. It it just feels a little bit too expensive even with channel in my testing, and yeah. and if it lands it does survive, but it doesn't kill as quickly. So I'm not sure that the trade is worth it. I probably won't keep it in my channel fireball deck, but I'm going to play with it a little bit longer. But I think what you said is really keen in terms of how does this, this brick fit in with all the other bricks in the set? How does it interact with the elementals and so on and so forth? And being a four, six, it's clearly tilted a bit more towards defense, but it has real power behind that, behind that as well. Yeah. Yeah. The card was uh, printed Alpha Beta Unlimited Revised Summer 4th, and then it skipped 5th edition for whatever reason, and was in 6th. <laughs> hasn't been printed since. It's only ever been printed with this art, and obviously you can get a little bit of a different effect depending on which printing you want in terms of how, how, how washed out it is or how crushed the blacks are. The Summer Edition looks ridiculous because of how dark Summer was and how dark this art already is. <laughs> All the details crushed out of the thing in the Summer art. It's, it's comical. Speaking of comedy... Check out this flavor text. Who are they trying to kid? The foot stone is connected to the ankle stone. The ankle stone <laughs> is connected to the leg stone. And it's attributed to Song of the Artificer. That's um, that's some, that's some low energy uh, flavor text in my opinion. <laughs> in, the, in the gamma context, this card is uh, uh, predictably just called Golem. Yeah. And uh, it's, it's just exactly the same card. Yeah, and there's obsidious, obsidian, which is a, a, a volcanic rock. I don't know what obsidious is, 
<laughs> yeah, th- this is another one of those cards I think that is is pretty high on the list of mispronunciation because you're right. It's it's obviously evoking obsidian, but there's no D in there, <laughs> and so it's O B S I A N U S obsidianus. Oh yeah, obsidianus golem. And so the the similarity to obsidian, I think, inspires people to mispronounce it because it's easy to just kind of glaze over the the order of the vowels. Here. <laughs> I think they there's a bunch did of did themselves a, a little bit of a disservice. A massive diphthong in there, is what this is, <laughs> is <it> right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and um, you know, I, I wouldn't be, <laughs> I would be remiss if I didn't point out that this is the only magic card that has the word anus in its title. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Uh, you know, that's that's neither here nor there. So, Steve, have you ever uh, cast this card prior to Alpha League, like when you were young? Did you ever play this? Because pre- I, I just never did. Well, I'm pretty sure this came in at least... Me- well, I know. It came in many of the revised starters I opened, for a fact. <laughs> <laughs> I, I seem yeah. to always get this. I don't know why. <laughs> but, um, yeah. I probably played it in like my first like packs of you know starters of revised. That I got, yeah. you know, but um, I never I'm played in this boat. in Constructed. I know that. Yeah, I'm in exactly the same boat. So this is Jesper Mirfor's art. And while the, the composition is obviously incredibly simple, I actually really enjoyed this art. And I'll tell you why. One of them, this is, the figure is, it's a mixture of simplicity, right? Because it's just kind of a basic masculine stone figure. But there's extra details in the the head right it's got these um i am w- loath to call them horns but i guess the horns is the right yeah. word and these I mean, what do you call organ pipes i mean <laughs> uh, I, i'm not sure <laughs> but it's got this these markings around the eyes i guess you it doesn't have so i guess pu- you call them flues or shoots because they might yeah. be exhaust pipes or something but but go ahead <laughs> <laughs> um it's got these markings around the eyes that, that could be just a trick of the light, or it could be tattooing, since it's hard to know. And I don't know how you tattoo a stone, but but it's got a, 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 a some kind of signet in its in its forehead. I just think that there's just enough of a an allusion to some history or some context for who created the thing, right? And then also the background is subtle in that it's got some layered colors that dissolve into a night sky with some very clear stars behind. I just kind of think it's nice. It's got a little bit more to it than the average context list object in Alpha. Fair enough. I'm eager to get to these two big next misprints we have next. So I don't have much oh, to add. Oh, yeah. Yeah. For some reason, Alpha was just incapable of getting Orcish cards correct, right? <laughs> <laughs> so first up, we have Orcish Artillery. Now, the Alpha version costs 1R. It's a summon orcs, tap to do two damage to any target, but you suffer three damage as well. And it's a one three. <laughs> famously, famously, this and the next card had their mana costs wrong. Mana cost of one R in the printed version in Alpha was supposed to be one RR. supposed to be a three mana creature. Uh, uh, Steve, so we already talked about the, the Mondo combo of this and um, Circle Red, for example. It's built into Alpha, one of many. And But I would like to know... How big of a deal is that, specifically in Alpha League, where the combo is powered up by the 33% reduction in this card's <laughs> mana cost? It's a huge difference. Yeah. Number yeah. one, number one, in Alpha League, there it's very hard to build reliable mana 
um, in multicolor decks because dual lands are restricted and they're already hard enough to get as alpha rares. <laughs> you know, Naturally. it's not like anyone can build a, you know, 16 plateau deck in alpha. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe Daniel Chang. <laughs> um, right. but, um, so being red one means that this is basically splashable in anything that's X red. Number mm-hmm. two, it means that it's, it, I think I've already mentioned this, but it's part of one of the most powerful common uncommon combos in alpha which is cop red sure. in this which is just an immensely effective and unfair and brutal combo to be on the, <laughs> the other side of because cop red is already you know pretty good you know in any like in any given match of alpha the chances your opponent's going to have red cards is probably at least 25% and probably closer to 50 right because x just red has yeah. really good spells yeah, like the x spells are so good and lightning bolt yeah and so Playing COP Red, like, I've seen people play COP Red with Slide of Mind and COP Red with this. So, you know, in different decks, and we've already talked about how COP Red's the best COP. So, nice. so this combo is just absurdly obnoxious. So, basically, you get this down, and then on ter- the turn after you play this, you play the COP, you activate this, you activate the COP, and you can just basically burn out your opponent, you know, turn after turn. It's pretty unfair. And you can block... So you can say block a tutu with this, and then their end step activate it. You know, <laughs> yeah, it it does somewhat inexplicably in the context of red have a one three power and toughness. Yeah. It's a very unred power and toughness. <laughs> yeah, it's unfair. It's it's defensive and offensive at the same time. So it's yeah. just a really powerful card. And then once in you know, you already talked about in the context of of vintage that you know with off color mox and generic mana. You know the multiple mana requirements like Lavinia or Meddling Mage are you know immensely different. But if this was two red, you you know it'd obviously be much better than red red one. And being red one, oh, yeah. being red one, it's like this is just probably. I mean, is there a better two drop creature in Alpha? Well, that's a compelling question, and no, I I, I don't believe there is <laughs> at, at the two mana cost. This thing is incredibly just incredibly <laughs> overpowered. There's no two mana creature in alpha that lives through this, or two or fewer creature uh, that isn't save uh, regeneration, right? Will of the Wisp and Drudge Skeletons can live through this through regeneration, but that's not really a winning strategy. And there's probably another exception I can't think of at the moment. But the simple truth is, is that at one or two mana, this is completely overpowered. Yeah, you know, we talked about the the one this so the one X the colorless or yeah colorless X. Um, mana cost yeah. for creatures. Remember the super cycle? Well, the original super cycle was, what was it? Dark Confidant. Uh, Dark Confidant, Young Pyromancer, Stoneforge, um, Quarian Dryad and Green, maybe? I guess, yeah, I can't remember then, what was attributed to Green and Blue and then in that maybe, cycle offhand. Maybe, uh, Prodigy, Fringe Prodigy in Blue <laughs> completes the super cycle. <laughs> The, yeah, I'm not sure the, what people accepted as all the entries in that cycle were, but I know what you mean. Yeah, I mean, this is basically a, a super cycle com, uh, a competitor. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the high irony is that in today's, in modern magic, you could print this card at 1R. It might be have to be a rare. It might have to be a rare. But wow. it's, it's, there's been so much power creep yeah. anymore that that's actually feasible. Um, not that I'm saying they would necessarily. So that's the explanation for the where the card fits from a, a you know modern standpoint did you play this card in the old 
in, you know, in the old days when you were young or in early no, vintage I, anyway? I gravitated so early on to white blue. And then, as I said, I had different configurations of white blue that I never even really tr- seriously tried this card. Um, no, even in 94, I was playing white blue deck. Um, I, the, the one thing I will say about, about this is I have, I have picked up four of these in alpha for alpha league and they are immensely fun. <laughs> They're also nice. very expensive and, and getting increasingly so by the minute. <laughs> uh, I can imagine. Yeah. Well, I, again, given that this was uncommon and revised, I had stacks of these, uh, after a while when I was young and I absolutely played this card with spirit link on it. Oh, that's a cool combo <laughs> for fun. Yeah. Yeah. That's... I never really got into the whole circle of protection version, but I definitely cast this with some spirit links on it in my day. I definitely and that was fun. I definitely tested spirit link in my bl- various blue white decks as a kind of additional cord uh, swords of plowshares type effect. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. Well, that's cool. And this, so this card was reprinted a number of times. It was a corset staple. Abu four five looks like six seven eight nine and M ten. Yeah, all the way up to M ten. Add uncommon. It looks like four different arts. Is that right? It actually alternated one art back to a different art and then back to the same art. <laughs> That's funny. God. Not many cards do that. Go to one art, go to another art, and then go back. Um, yeah. So everything, every core set up to M10, this card was a strong so, staple. So as we bridge to the next card, Kevin, this card is not only popular and collectible because because of its playability, but because of its it's incredibly unique as a misprint. Uh, for people yeah. who collect misprints, and that's also true for our next card. That's that's obviously correct, Steve. The next card is Orcish Auraflame, which um, has kind of the same misprint, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> of a sort. So the alpha version, again, costs one R. It's an enchantment. It says, when attacking, all of your attacking creatures gain plus one, plus zero. Kind of a strange redundancy from a wording, but... Uh, for those of you who are familiar with this card, normally it's supposed to cost twice as much, right? 3R is the, the oracle text, and otherwise the ability is the same. So it's it's no surprise that when you discount an effect, an offensive effect like this by 50%, the effect is uh, pretty strong. So how does this card fit, especially in Alpha League? Well, Orcish Artillery is high playability. I think, I, I think Orcish Artillery might be one of the top 10 creatures, maybe even top 7 creatures in Alpha League. Um, mm-hmm. But Orcish Auraflame is moderated by League Authorities, which means you can only play three of them. I think it's hilarious. Uh-huh. Um, I, I, <laughs> I mean, I've been on the receiving end of a few creatures with an Auraflame in play, and it's not fun. I mean, you get you get beat up pretty quickly. Um, but but the downside that it, it's only activated. It's not like a Crusade or a Bad Moon. It, it's not uniform all the way around or a Gauntlet of Might, right? It's it's only on offense, um, and so what was the one of the, I think oh the example in which I remember playing against it was my opponent had an aura flame and a juggernaut and I had a jade statue and I I couldn't <laughs> I had to trade <laughs> nice yeah um, that's funny no it's uh, I I think it's actually perfectly costed honestly for for league play at red one I mean why not bad moon and crusade are at two mana why can't this and it's this is only half of that why can't it be why can't it be yeah, I'm totally with you. I mean, the card, the actual card, one uh, R attacking creatures you control get plus one plus zero has been printed since huh, this. Really? Oh, was yeah, it? Yeah, it's um, called Goblin. Goblin it's called Goblin Aura Flame. Aura Flame. It was in Modern Horizons. Yep. <laughs> so 
Your observation is spot on, and R&D agrees with you strongly, I think. <laughs> also a cool... And, cool. and yeah, it really pales in comparison to Crusade and, and Bad Moon, for that reason right. alone. Right, and it's not like it's... It's like... I mean, they are cumulative, just like the the other enchantments we just mentioned, but it's not like it's... Naturally. Uh, it's not like it's like Monastery Mentor cumulative. <laughs> you know, it's not... <laughs> It's not obnoxious in that way. Well, and uh, the Orcish Oriflame with the the original mana cost, sorry, the the you know the corrected mana cost was another one of those core set staples in the early How days. How long did that go? It was at, up through fourth, and then fifth, sixth, and seventh. So it didn't last quite as long as the artillery, but it did get up all the way up into seventh edition. And I would argue that that was overstaying its welcome, right? Yeah. I mean, for uh, I. Had a stack of these as a kid because of revised uncommons, and um, I never played them in any decks. Like I yeah. think I tried it once and was just well, supremely no, disappointed four, with how low impact. It I is. mean, yeah, exactly. At four, you can't really curve out it into it and, and expect it to do a lot. I mean, it's the kind of the antithesis of the sly concept, right? You never get to four. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I wasn't even building sly decks. I was just noticing that at four mana, I'd much rather play a Keldon Warlord than <laughs> <an> Orkishora Flame. <laughs> Yeah. The art is uh, appropriately menacing. I think it's actually great art. It's simple. It's, uh, you know, it's meant to be menacing, as you said. And it's got a cool fantasy art skull, right? Even with some etchings in it. And yeah, I'm I'm actually a big fan of this art in its simplicity. Me too. It's worth noting that Orcish Artillery and Oriflame were both not in Gamma. I have a feeling that the fact that they weren't in Gamma contributed to their misprinting. (laughs) Very likely. Well, Steve, this next card you oh. and I have a very unique history with, <laughs> <Yes>. um, personally, <laughs> yes. right? And I suppose we've told that story on this show before, but we can probably relay it again. Yes. But let's talk about Paralyze. Paralyze, for a single black mana, is an enchant creature. Target creature is not untapped as normal during untap phase, unless four mana are spent. So, Tap target creature when Paralyze is cast. So before we say anything, here we go again with that as normally during untap text yeah. that's on yeah. Time Vault and Mana Vault and Basalt Monolith and again here. Actually, I had forgotten that it was on Paralyze, but it's on other things too. I mean, but but here we go again. <laughs> here we go. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Doesn't specify. Well, anyway. So so why don't you go? <laughs> so let me actually let me say this before we get into the story. Um, Paralyze <laughs> is actually probably one of the most efficient black removal spells in Alpha, in limited edition. And it's oh, yeah. just, I mean, so it's half as much as a terror, much more reliable than a terror. Um, it's, uh, basically rampant in mono black decks and, and Alpha League. Not quite good enough for 94 constructed, um, because you have so many, such, you, the mana base consistency gives you black access to so many more, um, removal spells although i'm i'm not sure i wouldn't be surprised if some of the 94 93 94 decks that you know had run a couple paralyzed here or there um so so i mean this is something this gives black basically i think it's best answer to a juggernaut flat out you know oh yeah i uh, can't terrorize it everything else is so much slower drain life pestilence so much more so much slower yeah but kevin the funny part about this card is the discussion about whether it's cumulative or not so go ahead yeah, so the funny part, <laughs> it's, it's, let's put it this way. If your creature becomes paralyzed, you have to put mana into it to untap it. <laughs> but 
the way the alpha version is worded is ambiguous with respect to what the effect in practice really should be because it says doesn't untap at normal during untap unless four mana are spent and the trick is do you does do you have to pay four mana for each copy of paralyze right because you could very very easily read that as if you have one copy of paralyze it doesn't untap unless you spend four mana for this paralyze and it's not <laughs> it's not worded as though you have the choice of um, you know, pay four mana to untap it. It just says it won't untap unless you've put four mana into this. Now, never mind the fact that we don't do things during untap anymore, and so the oracle wording is has all been moved to the upkeep, of course. But it's just it's just com- basically, in my opinion, unresolved as to whether or not you have to pay four per paralyze in the purely alpha context. I think this might be one of the best examples in alpha, clearest examples of syntactic ambiguity. So mm-hmm. syntactic, syntactic ambiguity is different from semantic ambiguity. Semantic ambiguity refers to the ambiguity a specific word has in a, in a sentence, whereas sy- syntactic ambiguity has to do with the holistic ambiguity a sentence conveys. And I think this, I think this is a, a kind of like a, po- you know, a, a perfect example of that. Um, Kevin, if you, I mean, and, and by the way, the cards that are, syntactically ambiguous require a rules manager to decipher and interpret. That's the precise mm-hmm. reason why we have clarifications is to deal with mm-hmm. that problem. I, I don't think there is a natural reading here. Target creature is not untapped as normal. We got that, right? Um, target creature is tapped. Uh, t- you tap the target creature when it's cast. That's fine. That's clear. And by the way, I, I mm-hmm. would assume that when you play a second paralyze, if the creature is untapped, it would automatically tap because of the attack paralyze. That's in the, you know, yeah. that just makes sense. But the question is... Seems pretty defensible. Yeah, the question then is the middle part. If if they pay four mana, does it untap as normal? It's unclear whether that's an ability that's grafted onto the creature itself or whether that is an effect of the paralyze, the specific copy of paralyze. And so I think you need someone to de- decide one way or the other. So the way this came up was I was playing in a type one side event Circa what 2002, Kevin, and you were there. I think you were there. Yep. Yeah, I was. This was you and me. Mastriano was there yeah. in Columbus, and I was playing an Ophidian deck, mono blue control, and against <laughs> a player who you knew, who was an acquaintance of yours in the Michigan Ohio area. Yeah, you used to used to remember his name. I can't remember it now. I can't remember it now. That's <laughs> funny. <laughs> so long ago. It was it was a loose acquaintance. <laughs> <laughs> And he cast a paralyze on my Ophidian. <laughs> and um, a second paralyze, I paid for it. And then he cast a second paralyze, tapping my, uh, you know, well, my Ophidian had attacked in. And he had like stone throwing devils and things like that. And then I paid four to untap the Ophidian with double paralyze. And we called a judge. We called the judge. And the judge clarified that they were not cumulative. And he, nice. and my opponent about blew it, blew his top. He <laughs> and then he and then a couple months later, the card was errated and it was made cumulative. <laughs> so he, he he complained he was going to contact wizards and successfully got it errated. <laughs> Today is it well, is it cumulative, Kevin? The oracle wording does say at the beginning of the upkeep of enchanted creatures controller that player may pay four if the player does untap the creature. There you go. 
So so it is not cumulative. <laughs> Multiple paralyzes will be redundant. Ah, um, so it's been in, reverted. In the wording today. Yeah. Reverted back. The other thing that's interesting. So Kevin, just as a thought experiment with respect to this, um, if if Tabernacle was not so let's obviously some examples are tab, uh, Tabernacle and Energy Flux. If if Tabernacle was not legendary and you had two Tabernacles yeah. into play, how would you apply that? Well, it has everything to do with whether or not the Tabernacle um, is itself asking you to pay for the creature, or if the Tabernacle is imparting Gives. the ability onto the creature. Right. In the case of the Tabernacle, it says all creatures have quote at the beginning of your upkeep destroy this creature unless you pay one. If you manage to get two Tabernacles in play, which is possible today, you could make it not legendary, make a non-legendary copy, for example. Um, each one of them would impart that impart their own unique instance of that text onto the creature. So it would be as though the creature had that text twice on it, and you'd have to pay two. Energy flux is cumulative. In the case of energy flux, the text says all artifacts have, at the beginning of your upkeep, sacrifice this. So energy flux and tabernacle are functionally equivalent in how they impart an, a cost to the, the permanence that they affect. And the only meaningful difference about your scenario is just that the tabernacle is legendary. So if you wanted it not to be cumulative, how would you phrase it? Just for clarity. Yeah, it would have to not give the... Um, Creature would say... It would have to not give the ability to the cards. Yeah. But How would you I do think that it, without if, giving the ability? Um, yeah, the, the, the simplest way doesn't actually work. If, if the energy flux said at the beginning of each player's upkeep that player pays x you know where x is number of artifacts they control having two energy flux would still be cumulative there would have to be a way that you checked that said something like oh gosh i can't i can't construct it on the fly there it would have to be more convoluted than you want it to be yeah. i guess is yeah. the answer you would have to have some check that said like trinosphere did you pay x for the artifact ah, yeah in which case, yeah, it would be very convoluted, but you could make a check that said, did you pay anything for it? And if you did, then you're fine. And if you didn't, you know, then something bad would happen. <laughs> so again, more convoluted than it needs to be. It's possible to construct it, but it's better the way that it is. So in general, so it's interesting, in general, upkeep costs, things like that are probably going to be cumulative because it's very hard to design a card in a simple syntactical construction. <laughs> yeah, easy to parse. Yeah, that, that, is, not, that is not cumulative, but... Yes. For a card that is is an enchant creature and not a not a global enchantment, then it's the opposite. It's going to be hard to make it cumulative and easy to make it non-cumulative. I would I would suspect. Well, I mean, in the case of something like Paralyze, where the the net result is kind of a binary outcome, yeah, tapped or untapped, right? It's it's as you said, it's easy to make it not cumulative because satisfying the first one gets you the good outcome <laughs> right yes and therefore you don't need to satisfy the rest if there was some non-binary thing that happened well all of um, these are binary so tabernacle and energy flux they stays in play uh, or it goes to the graveyard it's destroyed yeah so i guess w what i'm getting at is something that could happen the where the negative effect would be cumulative like taking damage okay right yeah if, if you replace energy flux with uh well something like warp artifact where you take damage equal to the number of artifacts you had like something like that then that's that different kind of cumulative right? right you get the negative effect twice over and if you change that into a creature enchantment like say wanderlust right oh well, wanderlust doesn't have a cost but imagine if wanderlust had a cost you could pay like to tabernacle. avoid the effect yeah 
you'd have to pay it twice to avoid the effect twice. Yeah. Yeah. That would be a, that would be that would make something like that cumulative. That makes sense. We should also share Steve how that player that you're referring to and that deck in question was the impetus for our team name. <laughs> Go ahead. Well, because we, we were all ostensibly playing um, more highly tuned and normal <laughs> metagame decks yeah. in that particular vintage <laughs> event. You know, Steve's playing a brown paper bag or a variant thereof, you know, his mono blue Ophidian deck. And I don't remember what I was playing. Paul was possibly playing Mask Knot or, you know, something like that, right? We're all playing metagame decks and testing for larger tournaments like SCGs and Waterberries, right? And in strolls this guy with his mono black Stone Throwing Devils <laughs> yeah. Paralyzed deck, right? Yeah. And we were all having a good time. Well, this guy was very fond of his deck and he was not shy about it. He was. He was, you know, extolling its virtues, even as he was losing, right? And so at one point during this conversation, we were all having a, a pretty good go about how about this guy's deck and how, <laughs> how good it was. And he, he pipes up with the, the phrase that became the title of our team, which is, I've got me a mean deck. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> and we all had a good laugh about that and, and regaled ourselves with it a number of times later. And eventually that just became the impetus for Team Mean Deck. Good stuff. <laughs> in addition to all of that, we've already alluded to the fact that this paralyzed art, it forms oh, yeah. a pairing with the card Guardian Angel, where the energy bolt coming from the Angel's card is is the one affecting this centaur here. Right. I would like to point out that this is one seriously punk rock centaur. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Anson Maddox is I at would, it again. <laughs> <laughs> this this creature, so it's it's in in the vein of the elves from Llanowar Elves, right? Yeah. With the the pink mohawk, right? You could make a case that this could be a member or at least a cousin of the Llanowar tribe because yep. it's got similar skin tone, pointed ears, similar pink mohawk, right? Different different art or tattooing on the head, but otherwise this could very much be a Llanowar elf. Great point. Uh, with with the expect with the exception that, of course, this is a centaur. Um, but I just am I just marvel at the fact that this creature is so punk rock. Like this is <laughs> you know like a leather vest slash bustier, um, a, a leather belts and some other straps on the body, and pink hair and an artful uh, giant swaths of tattooing on the head, very similar to Llanowar elves. It's pretty pretty awesome. It really is. It's cool. All right. Anything else on Paralyze? No. Um, oh yeah, it was it was a staple. It was a staple in the core sets up to only fifth edition. It only lasted till fifth edition, which I think is a shame because for the reasons you cited, it's actually hyper efficient. But I have a feeling that it had something to do with it being out of the color pie because this whole tapping creatures is not a, a black thing by today's standards. Possibly also the the rules confusion it generates. Uh, that could be too. You're right. Or at least a contributing factor, not the main. Yeah. Next up is a very simple one. We're talking about Pearled Unicorn. A 2W for a summon unicorn with only flavor text, and it's a 2-2. This, you know, this is directly <laughs> in the Grey Ogre model. This card is so simple, there's a reason no one says, oh, there's your Pearled Unicorn. It's It's been <laughs> forgotten, right? It's a... <laughs> Yeah, it's it's really kind of a shame that Grey Ogre won out as the, you know, the, the model because the Pearled Unicorn is still a great card. And Unicorn is a cool tribe that doesn't get very much love. It, Unicorn as a tribe has only been kind of reinvigorated by Wizards in the last couple of years. Um, there have been, I mean, there's several Unicorns. There's still apparently 24 Unicorns uh, throughout the history of Magic. A couple of them are online, I think, promos. 
And, you know, consistently we got one every other set or so, every other block, I guess. There's a couple of them in Mirage in the early days, etc. It's still an under underappreciated, undermatured tribe. The um, I want to point out that the flavor text here is from Lewis Carroll. I'm not going to read it, but it's one of cool. the one of the common things in Alpha that didn't last much beyond Alpha was using real world quotes from real world literature on the cards, which is cool. I love that. Um, I wish they do. It's more a little of bit that. of a shame. Yeah, I, I agree. I'm one of those people who would like more of that. I don't need magic to be wholly outside of the realm of other human culture. Yeah, in that sense. There's already so many other illusions vis-a-vis Dungeons and Dragons, Lord of the Rings, and all that jazz. There might as well be a few others. Uh, a note on the lineage, Pearl Unicorn was in the core sets up until 5th edition. So another one that overstayed its welcome hmm. in terms of vanilla creatures. All right, next up is one that we're going to have some fun with, Steve. This is Personal Incarnation. For 3 WWW, you get a summon avatar. It says, Caster can redirect any or all damage done to personal incarnation to self instead. The source of the damage is unchanged. If personal incarnation is destroyed, caster loses half his or her remaining life points, rounded up the loss. Rounding, sorry, up the loss. And it is a 6-6. A couple of interesting notes about the language here. There's a couple of interesting notes about the, the rate of the thing and the mana cost, as well as the art. And the rules, I mean, this card's got a little bit of everything. I really want to point out, ironically, that the first word on this card is caster, hmm. which introduces some ambiguity with respect to control changes, right? Mm-hmm. If you control magic my right. personal incarnation, I'm still the caster. I don't know if I want to read too much into that, but I think there's... I don't know if the word caster is codified in the rules. I can't remember. And... um we talked about this earlier, this card earlier with respect to things that happen when a creature dies. This is on a short list of things in Alpha that have anything to do with creatures dying, right? Because the, the notion of something going to the graveyard and giving you some effect, good or bad, was pretty rare in Alpha. There's Soul Net, there's Creature Bond, which checks for a creature dying, and then there's Sanger Vampire that checks for a creature dying. But Personal Incarnation is the only card in Alpha that cares about itself dying. Wow. Yeah, it really is anyway, intended Steve. to be an avatar of the of the caster, but <laughs> mm-hmm. but that does lead to a very strange thing that if you control magic it and then destroy it, you're hurting not the controller but the <laughs> the the avatar. Yeah, yeah, and that's it cuts both ways, right? The first ability, which is upside, that you can re- redirect damage done to it to yourself. That's because you're it's it's a projection of you, right? But then the second part, it's downside. When it dies, you lose half your life. Both those things reference the caster. So I would argue that both of them should follow with, you know, they they have to follow in line vis-a-vis control changes like control magic. Kevin, there's a, uh, in one of the early issues of The Duelist, there is a puzzling by Mark Rosewater. In fact, it's the one that comes out right after Legends, where personal incarnation is, is control magic and there's a spirit shackle on it. Spirit Shackle. Yeah. Help me out with Spirit Shackle. That's the it, that's the aura from Legends that gives it um it reduces its power, doesn't it? Yes, it does. Um when it an puts enchanted a, creature becomes tapped, put a zero minus zero minus two counter on it. So it reduces its toughness, excuse me. Yeah. And it has um and in the key I think the the key to the puzzle is, if I recall correctly, is Gauntlets of Chaos, 
switching control of personal incarnation to give it to your opponent <laughs> and then destroying it. And I wonder if now that I'm looking at it, I'm, I wonder if the reason they had control magic on it was so that, <laughs> well, it would be confusing. <laughs> yeah. Well, who knows? But maybe it's because they, because the actual alpha text says caster. And so the gauntlets of chaos is intended to get it back to your opponent who has 39 life. And then I think I think the key to the puzzle is basically destroying <laughs> destroying the personal incarnation to get them to like twenty life, and then you know much less nice. beyond that. But anyway, that's that's funny that that's uh, <laughs> well, the point you're making. Uh, uh, I have to give credit because the oracle wording reinforces my observations in an interesting way. It has two abilities. The first one is an activated ability, zero colon. The next one damage that would be dealt to personal incarnation this turn is dealt to its owner. Instead, mm. only personal incarnation's owner may activate this ability. So that mirrors the alpha concept of the, the ability being tied to the caster, right? Yes. Caster being an equivalent to owner. The second ability is when personal incarnation dies, its owner loses half their life rounded up. So in practice, and I didn't realize this until just now, but in practice, the Oracle wording retains the caster slash owner functionality That's regardless great. of control. That's great. Yeah. I was always so it, too afraid to ever play this card. <laughs> it's funny that you say that because I felt exactly the same way. I looked at it and was too intimidated by the text and too intimidated by the downside to ever bother trying. But in practice, it's it's actually pretty cool in some matchups. Like the thing's hard to kill. Yeah. It's definitely hard for it red has, or green to kill it. It has built in kind of inverse, uh, what do you call it? Uh, jade, it's, I guess it's Jade statue, not Jade, jade Monolith. Jade Monolith, yeah. yeah. It's the inverse. Absolutely. No, no, it, no, yeah, it is it's the inverse in that the creature's doing it, right. but it is Jade Monolith's ability. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, and the, another cool thing about it is at 6-6, six, six, this thing obviously pairs up very well with most of the creatures in Alpha. If you're tussling with like a craw worm, right, you don't have to take the six damage. You can just take one of it. So even though it feels like you're going to have to prevent a lot of damage to keep this thing from dying, it's actually, you only have to prevent a couple here or there to have this thing live through almost every creature in alpha, even a force of nature. Like if you block a force of nature with this, you only have to take three to keep this thing alive. No, I take that back because of trample. You only have to take one. Mm. You end up taking three damage in practice because of the two trample. But the point is it's actually better wow. at preventing damage to you. than you think that's a with great having six point. Toughness. Wow. Taking three damage from a force of nature, being able to distribute it that way. That's, that's impressive. Wow. Yeah, and that's without any kind of modifications, this, right? That's without any banding or any, you know, crusades or any other things. As soon as you factor in any kind of other stuff, this thing becomes super powerful. Any, it's like the original Encore. <laughs> the any or all is not something that we really saw a lot of. Really, that's the, oh, yeah. that's the key. So for Jade Monolith, isn't it all? Do you have to take it all? Or can you be, is it any? Oh, I, I'm sorry. I've already forgotten. <laughs> Jade Monolith. Let's see. The next time a source of your choice would deal damage to target creature this turn, you source your damage. Yeah. That source deals damage to you instead. Yeah, so you have to do all for Jade wow. Monolith. This is much more flexible. Yeah. I, I think it's funny, though, that they turned that kind of generic any or all into a zero, a zero at colon activated ability. It seems... Yeah. I, I mean, is it really an activated ability, or is it kind of like a trigger replacement? Uh, it's... Yeah... Th- I'm with you. You could absolutely implement this as a replacement 
Yeah. It says like if personal incarnation would suffer damage, <laughs> the um you, you may choose if that damage to be directed to you <laughs> like the problem is is that gets a little wonky when terms of how to uh, with with damage um uh in quantities greater than 1. Like you could still do it. You could have it just kind of the way this is worded. You could ha- you could redirect some or all of that damage to yourself. I guess is how you would have to word it. But I have a, I, but I think an activated ability here is a little more elegant vis-a-vis all the implications of damage prevention and redirection. Also, I think that the current Oracle text makes some assumptions about the existence of the stack because the next is doing a lot of work here, right? It could be. You're right. And it, yeah. <laughs> that's not and, really. And it is functionally a little different yes. because now with the, making this an activated ability in advance, your opponent knows about it in a way that they wouldn't with the alpha wording. Yep. Right. Also, yeah. I mean, all, not only that, but also it's it, it you know it's really about where this is in the stack, you know. So it's like yeah, it, damage sure. doesn't stack anymore in combat. So is that how does that impact right. this? Well, it just means that once blockers Our are side. declared, you, you, Jeez, yeah, and, and really ordered, you'd have to activate this ability. That's really uh, and fun- however many times you want. That's really functionally different because it is. Yeah, because I mean. If you're once you've got all the blockers lined up, right, and then mm-hmm. you have you have to decide to activate this because you got priority, your opponent can then respond with giant growth, whatever, and then yeah, and, absolutely, and then it's all you have to redecide whether to do this. Whereas if it's a replacement, then it's all done after the fact, right? Yeah, I completely agree. And also, never mind all the things that just interact with activated abilities like stifle, revoker. Needle. Stifle, oh, sure. that's obnoxious, man. That's really obnoxious. Yeah. yeah, there's. You shouldn't be able to needle the alpha version of this card. No, you absolutely needle the model <laughs> version. Wow. By the way, this card has gotten slagged on Magic the Gather a Gatherer in terms of ratings. <laughs> People hate this card. <laughs> it's got. I think that's unfair. <laughs> yeah, it's got two stars. <laughs> well, the fact that you the, just, the fact that this is a rare. And that on TCG player right now, I can buy a copy for a hundred bucks. Wait, no. Oh no, that's that's that price is not right. No. There's one copy on TCG for two hundred and seventy bucks. Sorry, really, I'm gonna get it right the, now. The average, was <laughs> yeah. I, but as but you well know that for an alpha rare, that's actually a decent price, no, right? Especially like, for a playable alpha rare. On the, yeah, on the low end of a alpha rare. Um, yeah, I don't know why the Scryfall lists the average cost right now is one hundred and five bucks for alpha. That's an out of date price. But anyway. Yeah, well, I I have a feeling that a lot of players are like you and me. Like I was, I was way too afraid to play this card. The downside seemed huge. Now that I'm reading it with some fresh eyes, I actually think this card's okay. Like, I think it's reasonable. You could probably play this in Alpha League and have some decent results, in my opinion. I agree, especially with how comparatively popular yeah. Red is in the league. Compared I mean, to Black. It's it's six mana, which is this you know just as efficient as uh, is Force of Nature without the mm-hmm. horrendous draw. I mean, well. I shouldn't say without the horrendous drawback. It doesn't have a four mana upkeep. (laughs) That's what I meant to say. Yeah. (laughs) And it's a lot harder to... As compared to Force of Nature, this drawback is not so bad. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, I mean, the thing is, it says if it goes to the graveyard, and, you know, if it's plowed, no problem, no damage. Oh, that's a good point. If personal incarnation is destroyed, it says, yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. So if it's... Well, that's interesting. Then, wait a second. Doesn't wh- which removal spells uh, say buried in alpha, right? Terror, because t- 
terror says buried. That was the first one I was going to go oh to, right? God. So if you terror this, no, 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 terror says destroy. Barry is in. It's, Barry um, is is in uh, revised. Wrath. Does Wrath say that Barry, in Alpha? We haven't got to it yet. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm double checking right now. Um. Oh no, Wrath says I destroy. I think Barry right. is introduced. Right. Barry's with not revised. in Alpha. Yeah. Okay. Never mind. But either way, your point about Plow is well made, right? Plow does not trigger this condition. Yeah. And of course, neither does that's, bouncing it, right? So unsummoned wouldn't do it either. I think that's what's that scared me the most is getting this plowed in revised. Let me let me just double check. In revised, it's if it goes to the graveyard. So if it's plowed, it's not a problem. Maybe I just undervalued yeah. this, and you're you're causing me to reevaluate this card. I think this is well, probably I, I, context is everything, right? Yeah. Back when I was playing, <laughs> would had access to a, a few of these because I did open a couple in revised. Um, Terror was omnipresent. Good point. In, in my play group and also i i just wasn't properly evaluating things like tempo and and rate right yeah. the and the fact that this was trip w you know it all just kind of pointed it's, in the bad direction <laughs> yeah i mean needing triple yeah triple white means that you can't really get this out to stop a juzam right i mean if your opponent goes dark yeah. ritual mocks juzam you're gonna, you're yeah. dead before this even gets into play <laughs> to deal with that right yeah, the, uh, this white and blue, uh, obviously, historically and practically, the hardest colors to accelerate out. So, in, yeah, in practice, it, this is a little bit more than a crawl. Also, worm. also, just like bolt chain lightning on this. Okay, take ten. <laughs> you know. <laughs> well, no, that's the thing. You don't have to. You don't have to prevent those. If somebody bolts this, you say, yeah. "Fine, it takes three. Oh, good point. Like, you only have to prevent the fit the yes. six point oh, of damage. Oh, god, you're right. I understood that. Yeah. I just forgot it. <laughs> it went back to my original template for this card. No, great point. Right, right. The original, yeah, it feels like you're taking all the damage this yeah, thing takes. It feels like practice, it's so risky. Taking, but yeah, you're not. taking X minus five damage that this thing takes. You know what? This card would be the perfect card. Oh, my God, Kevin. What? In a Banalish Hero deck, this is the perfect card to put into the band. I was going to say something about banding earlier, but if you factor in banding with this card, this card banding with a Banalish Hero is big game. That's the, really good. The, I mean, again, you have a band with five Banalish Heroes and this. <laughs> good God. Because this yeah. can suck up any damage and then anything you want in the band, you can assign all the damage from the band to this and put it to yourself. Make everything in the band survive. This is yeah. a perfect throw-in for a banding alpha banding deck. Holy moly. Totally. Totally. So so I'm going to build my uh, dual decks with, with the, <laughs> the Plague Rad deck with <laughs> against this. Nice. Awesome. Yeah. So we got to talk about this art, right? It's very obvious that uh, this is a, kind of a literal projection of the wizard in the background projecting forth a much more beefy version of their self. The character that's being projected is i think very convincingly a projection uh, you know it's cir- circled in energy it's all yellow in color it looks doing some some dr manhattan action <laughs> and it has ridiculous just completely absurd comic book musculature which like keldon warlord pretty, <laughs> yeah like keldon warlord this is some kev brock schmidt same artist right 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 but at the same time it, it, it's it's humorous to me but it's convincing is what i would say it's it's portraying the card i think pretty well the intent of the card, I believe. Yeah, I don't. I don't disagree with you. I mean, I think it, it's got that kind of like wizard in the foreground. Actually, in this case, it's in the extreme background, <laughs> right? right? Thing going on in the foreground, a lot of action. Um, yeah, it's. I mean, if I saw this art on a modern card, I probably would not be quite so generous. 
but I uh <laughs> <laughs> absolutely I would not yeah, I know. yeah if, you know again it's got a little bit of that rich Corbin you know for folks who are kind of rich Corbin is a who, he's who is he's that? a uh, illustrator who did a lot of kind of like 1970s like you probably heard of Fr- Frank Frazetta very famous illustrator yeah. like death dealer you know he did a lot sure. of that kind of um eerie you know there's a whole magazine uh series like Warren magazines who did like eerie creepy you know it, it, Corbin got cut his teeth on that like with Bernie Wrightson who did swamp thing very very much it has that kind of like rich that Corbin feel I, I don't know how to describe the art but it's got it's got it very much reminds me. Keb Rochmit is I believe a kind of a disciple of Corbin that's well, all I can say about that. Uh, Look it up. <laughs> I, I don't have nearly as much experience as you do, but having actually read Swamp Thing in the past year, I feel that. I definitely feel that. This card was printed ABU, revised, summer, fourth, and fifth. It got a different art by Kev Walker, a different Kev, <laughs> in fifth edition. And the Kev Walker art's actually pretty cool, but totally different style, obviously. Yeah, I think this card, you know, this card's a borderline mystifier. I'm actually surprised <laughs> that it survived the the mystifier culling after unlimited because Yeah. I can personally yes. attest to not understanding this card. It's not just not understanding it from a, a like a syntactic how does it function standpoint, but in addition to the rules complexity, it has a whole bunch of strategic complexity. You and I, as seasoned players, are still struggling with how this card should even be put into a deck and played where it would be good, you know? And that's a testament to how complex this card is uh, strategically as well. No, I I don't think I quite realized the depth of this card. The any or all is incredibly tricky to operationalize in Magic. Yes, I agree. I mean, you need a million caveats to deal with that. I mean, I can't even think about all the interactions, but... can redirect any or all damage done to it to self instead that's that's uh, god don't construct some crazy scenarios with like veteran bodyguard and jade monolith and (laughs) redirect to this redirect to that alley from cairo action i don't know that's tough yeah god yeah let's bring this one back up when we get to veteran bodyguard (laughs) all right cool cool card i enjoyed the discussion on this one yeah i enjoyed it more than i thought i was going to uh, worth noting that this card was not in Gamma. Don't know. Can't explain why it was added. <laughs> not that I can tell you in any I, my, case, but not in Gamma. My best guess is they probably looked around and saw that all the colors but white had a kind of beefy finisher. Well, that's a fair interpretation, sure. I'll buy that. All right. Next up, Pestilence. God. Oh, boy, Pestilence. <laughs> God. So, 2BB for an enchantment. It says B colon... Do one do one damage to each creature and to both players. Okay, let me say that again. Do one damage to each creature and to both players. Pestilence must be discarded at end of any turn in which there are no creatures in play at end of turn. Um. Okay, a couple things. One, do is hilarious. Yes. Like <laughs> we've we've talked about active and passive words. You know. Yes. And, and the, <laughs> like the whole context of alpha and do is a is a hilariously benign (laughs) word you know as compared to something like suffer or inflict right um it says each creature and two both players (laughs) yeah each creature and both players uh is another one of those many many wordings that assume there are only two players in a game which have obviously been uh, corrected to allow for multiplayer games um and the presence of the word discarded here is another one of the many 
places in which discarded is used in a way that we don't use it today. It's obviously meant to be from play, but the way it's phrased here, pestilence must be discarded in any turn which are no creatures in play, makes no reference to being in play. I could see there's a very real interpretation of this that if you fan open your opening hand and it has a pestilence in it, you're, you should be required to discard it at the oh end of the first turn of the game. God. Assuming you didn't cast a creature, right? <laughs> God. Uh, yeah. Uh, unfortunately, there is that, again, syntactic ambiguity. Yeah. Um, I, I think it, it's, it's much like the lich problem. It's just strongly implied, right? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> very strongly implied. Yeah. Yes, I agree. Um, yeah, it's exactly like this problem. I have a in fact. whole new appreciation for this card, having played an Alpha League. My God. It's so good. <laughs> it's so good. It's so good. It's frighteningly good. I yeah. had a hilarious situation. So obviously the best combo with this is with Fungusaur. And what yeah. all you have to do is you ping it once, and then you can ping Fungusaur any number of times after that, because the Fungusaur kind of yeah. immediately kind of regenerates itself and grows outward. Right, because the Fungusaur doesn't wait to grow. Yeah. We, we covered that in the Fungusaur section yeah. pretty thoroughly. I mean, it was hilarious. I think I mentioned this then, but just to briefly re- remind everyone, uh, my opponent pinged their uh, Fungusaur once with, with Pestilence, and it grew to 3-3. Uh, and then they did it twice, and it grew to 5-5, five, five, and then just kept putting yep. bl- black into it, right? All right? Yep. And they kept, yep. just kept growing. And it was like, they and they and the Pestilence did damage to me, and then the Fungusaur Naturally. killed me <laughs> on the next turn. <laughs> that gets out of hand fast. Yes, it's fast. But the thing about... So here's the thing. I actually won the match because I wiped my opponent's creatures out. And I had Jade Statue in play. And uh, Jade Statue is not a creature, so it doesn't doesn't stick around with, with Pestle. It doesn't cause Pestle to stick around. So right. my, I was able just to start swinging in. And the funny thing is, because Jade Statue, it, you can still activate it with the Pestilence in play after you've wiped the board, but it goes back to being an artifact after combat. So the Pestilence still leaves play. How obnoxious is that? <laughs> <laughs> Pretty great. <laughs> no, but, but Pestilence is... So here's a funny use case. Putting it in with the Plague Rats deck might be unfair. Because... Like in the dual deck of Plague Rats versus Banalish Hero. Yeah. Well, Pestilence is obviously a clear trump to that yes, Banalish Hero. Strategy. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I was getting at. Yeah. That's pretty unfair. I agree. <laughs> yeah. It's just, I mean, the Pestilence. Also, Pestilence is really fun with regenerators. You know, with uh, Drudge Skeletons, it's a little mana intensive, but not terribly. Well,. Yeah, and as we um as we discussed a couple of times in a couple of different contexts within the alpha rules, the fact that you can Load kind of up. bunch up the damage into one one delivery of damage, so to speak, yeah. then you get to only regenerate one time, whereas such a thing would not be really feasible in the modern rules. Right. Well, at least not with a 1-1 regenerator like Drudge Skeleton. Right. Yeah, how would that work with, a, let's say, a larger regenerator? I guess today, well, w- the damage sticks, w- and you'd have to continue to... Regenerate for- no regeneration uh, removes all the damage. That's the thing. Oh, nice. Yeah, the act, part of the act of regenerating is it, it removes all the so damage. On a so three, if you had a three, three three regenerator, you'd have to only do it once every three damage. Nice. You'd have to regenerate. Very yeah. nice. So oh, and by the way, the artwork on this. Well, this artwork is just like I think. I think it's the epitome. Really intensely gruesome. Yeah, it's the it's horrifying, and I think it's probably Jasper Mifers. First of all, the figure is classic Jasper Mifers. 
but it's oh, yeah. it's just this rotting, desiccated figure. I think it's the apogee of it's like the ultimate Jesper Meifer's horror effect. Like he's like he <laughs> he really went all in to make this frightening in a in a very <laughs> right extreme way. <laughs> awesome. I'm I'm with you there. I I'd, I'd like to ask an interpretive uh, uh, item on the art. I've always been a little bit confused by the context of this. The yeah. figure itself is very it's, much evoking sickness and plague, right? Yeah. The skin, the drooling, it's just everything. But what's the deal with this... this Stone columns? Clothing and this this kind of Greco-Roman I, feel. Yeah, it's, it's almost like a Syrian, Babylonian. I think that what this is, Kevin, I think it's a mummy. Ah, and the, the okay. garb is, is, yeah, like a... Assyrian, Egyptian. I think that's what this. I think that's what's going on here. Is that this is I a see. mummy whose garb has fallen off? Okay, I'll buy that. The card has is where it was reprinted. ABU revised summer fourth, fifth, and then <laughs> famously and infamously saga, and then sixth edition was the last real corset printing. It also follows a path that I observed earlier in another card, um, I think it was Orcish Artillery, that is somewhat unique in that it was printed with a different art in 5th edition, a different art, a brand, another different art in Saga, and then went back to its 5th edition art in 6th oh, edition. So this. it actually alternated arts. I am of the opinion that this is on a short list of cards where every one of its arts is just cooler than the next. Like, I have a strong affinity for the alpha art, as I usually do, but the fifth slash sixth edition art with the the necromantic piper <laughs> is really moody and interesting. And then the saga art with just this really grim set of creatures and the, you know a desiccating and dying figure in the foreground has some really interesting con- uh, composition, and I really like that art too. I just like all the pestilence arts. You need, sounds like you need to play some pestilence somewhere. Is this? I, it's funny you should say that. I bought this is probably two years ago now. I looked at this card for some reason. I was searching for things, whatever, and I saw it and thought, I need to play some pestilence. <laughs> <laughs> so I back about two years ago. I bought a couple of beta copies just because of like if I'm going to play pestilence, I want to have these beta ones. And so, but I haven't done it. But now that you mention it, I'm I'm thinking to myself, I need to put this in an EDH deck or something because because yeah, this card's. This card's so grim and so powerful, and it gets way more powerful in multiplayer that I, I should really should toss it into a deck. And I need to come up with a deck where my general can come back into play after the board's been cleared to keep my pestilence around. So I got I got to think about a, a deck that has a kind of a recurring black based general or one with flash that I can put back into play after I've killed everything. That sounds like fun. Has this, to your the, the best of your knowledge, has this appeared in any kind of like? upper tier constructed format decks over the years type 2 extended or whatever i have no memory no, of it not yeah a, i have no memory of this being powerful in any context other than say like old school and not even powerful in old school but that's the only yeah, examples i can even think it's immensely powerful in alpha and you can play in any unlimited quantities too so if you want nine pestilences yeah. you could it's just i mean it's it's a surprisingly powerful card i mean look you get you get a you get there are a number of effects that are sweepers and there are a number of effects that are direct damage. There's a far smaller number that do both, right? I mean, earthquake, hurricane, and volcanic eruption, and that's just about it, right? Yeah, I'm I'm with you. It's it's very powerful, and in a 
set like alpha where you're it's it's heavily incentivized to be creature based Mo- almost all the viable strategies are right yep. with some caveats it's just the the, the quote-unquote drawback to this is very it's it's not difficult to mitigate right either through a combination of your own resilient creatures like regenerators or your own enormous creatures because this plays very well with a nightmare right yep and so it's just not unreasonable to to construct a deck that can reasonably expect to just have pestilence in play reliably yeah it's pretty obnoxious and also i mean just the brilliance of putting this effect you know on on a permanent uh, but I just wanted to say, though, the brilliant conditionality. I mean, this is a sophisticated design, Kevin. The mana cost, the really activated is. cost, the effects, and the conditionality. To tie all those together into a satisfying effect, I think that takes some some real adroitness, some skill, evident skill. To answer your question about tournament play, I did a quick search um, on Goldfish. And except for Commander, where this card is definitely not a staple, but there's a couple of Commanders that, that work well with it. It's also seen some play in Pauper, which is what ah, I should have thought yeah. of before. Yeah, there are a couple of different Pauper archetypes that make good use of it. I would say, I don't know much about Pauper, but I know this is not like a, a tournament staple or anything. There's a couple of broken strategies in Pauper, and this isn't one of them. But it's still it's still usable in that form. How cool. Yeah. It's also worth noting that this card was reprinted, so that it's color shifted in uh, in Planar Chaos in red to, to Pyrohemia, which is exactly the same card, but in red. And that card's pretty cool and also usable in a similar way in Commander. Huh. And I also want to point out, our audience is probably strongly tilted toward Eternal formats and maybe less so toward limited play and also maybe less so toward being 100 years old. But <laughs> when this card was in... Okay, any limited environment that features this card is inherently flawed. <laughs> <laughs> the especially at common yes now we've already talked about how the 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 limited edition sets weren't designed for limited play they're they're not constructed that way they're not very good if you ever find yourself in a situation to be say playing sealed or drafted uh with alpha beta unlimited or revised this card is way overpowered because it's a common well just to that if i could just put a a fine point on that kevin all the cards i mentioned before earthquake hurricane volcanic eruption are all rare Mm. (laughs) Yes. And this is common. Explain yes. that. From a set construction standpoint, that is it stands out as a as a red flag. And the best uh, the best example of that was in Urza's Saga block. Urza's Saga, this went back from being an uncommon in was it uncommon in 5th edition? No, it was common in 5th edition, but it was uncommon in 6th edition because I learned a bit of a lesson from specifically Saga block. This card being a common in Saga block is the last time <laughs> when a set that featured Pestilence was also a, a frequently drafted set, and it was a big mistake God. having Pestilence at common in Saga block. It was way overpowered, but it was made worse by the fact that in Saga, there were also a ton of other OP common removal spells like Befoul, and then the it's not necessarily always used for removal, but the presence of Corrupt in that set made Black way overpowered in Limited, and Pestilence is a big reason for that. If you're ever in your, if you ever find yourself drafting a set that has pestilence in it, take strong note because pestilence will tilt the whole balance of power in that set. No matter <laughs> what. Well said. Stay tuned for more thrilling limited edition adventures in the next part of our episode 100 spectacular on so many insane plays.